Well, welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have Dr. Dave Horner joining us from Texas. We have Curtis. I'm in frozen California. And Dave, you're in California too, right? I am. Dave, you're joining for us from your office there at, at Biola University. Biola University. That's a nice office. Yeah, thanks. Dang. That's not a background. That's a nice that, that's, no, that's real... a, yeah. And actually, uh, when I'm looking at you, I'm I'm actually not looking at you. I'm looking past you uh, at some mountains. And as a Colorado boy, I, uh, you know, that's good for my soul. Nice. Although I can't really see him today because it's kind of cloudy, but mm, that's cool. But you take it on faith that they're there. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great office because it's largely because of that. So I'm yes. thankful. Yeah. Praise God. That's uh, the San Gabriel mountains. I think you're looking at. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, when I first moved here, I was a kind of a snooty Colorado boy as uh, I was a Colorado boy as well. I was not snooty as well because I'm not <laughs> implying that you were snooty, but uh, yeah, well, let's just get uh, that, get yeah, that clear get that, right from let's the get outset. That clear. Let's... Um, but I, I, I was such a snoot about Colorado's mountains that I, I saw these and, you know, I mean, but um, now the Sierras are, a different story they are I, I would say well i i, I should uh, i think maybe you're you'll i assume you'll have jp moreland on this show at some point if you haven't already but uh he came to colorado to recruit me to come out here and uh he also had a speaking engagement but his real reason was to come to recruit me to come out here and uh, mm -hmm. so i said well you know look at these mountains uh, that I've got here in Colorado and I go fly fishing. I can be up in fishing in, in 20 minutes. And, mm -hmm. and he said, and I, uh, I've never forgotten it. He said, well, our mountains can't beat your mountains, but our mountains can beat your ocean. <laughs> okay. That's pretty good. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's all you can say. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> you know, how did you, how did you look at him at that point? Were, were you just like, that is so deep. I... Uh, is it? Is that philosophy? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, obviously we we've met you before, and uh, you know we have this already. We have a, a a warm connection here on this, and we asked you to come in, uh, come on and talk about your book and the story behind the book. And uh, basically, just read it to us. No, but um, uh, so we're it's going to be a long episode, just reading. But um, I thought I would start off by just saying how I met Dave. I I met Dave at um, Denver Seminary. Um, this would have been two thousand, so right after Y two K wiped everything out. And we just had candles there at Denver Seminary. This would have been January 2000. And, um, <clears throat> and the lights still worked. And we were all just kind of disappointed because there was yeah. no Y2K and Jesus didn't really come back. And, and uh, so we had too much emergency food stored up. But uh, I took a 
an apologetics course there at Denver Seminary. It was a January term. And um, Kate Wadler was the TA. Hmm. She later went on to get a PhD in medieval philosophy or something like that, hmm. I think, at Cornell. I know that yeah. she was studying at CU Boulder at the time with one of the medievalists up there, McDonald or Pasnow, I forget. And um, um, so that's how I met Dave and ended up uh, taking another course from you, Social Ethics, that spring, which was a wonderful course. I remember reading Stanley Hauerwas out there on the grass one time in the sunny Colorado day. And, um, and then, uh, going up, uh, to Boulder with you and Kate on Wednesdays for the day spring course, philosophy of religion course, which was great fun as well. So I got to see, uh, Dave writing his dissertation there in the day spring house and sort of supervising and managing Kate. And I was kind of Kate's little lackey there. I think I took a couple classes. I, I, I took, I mean, I lectured for her a couple times that time I did the problem of evil. That was a really interesting and cool experience for me. And uh, that's how I first met you. Took another course from you down at, at Biola when I came out here with my Colorado snootiness. And that was uh, ancient and medieval ethics. Uh, a few years later and so anyway known dave now for 22 years i guess wow. so curtis did you have a, an anecdote or something before we got well i i uh let's say i i met dave i at biola um when when you came came to biola to teach um i thought oh who is this who is this new guy like you know, um, and, and how he, he's been recruited by JP. He's, he's gotta be, have some, something to say. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, he's from Oxford. (laughs) (laughs) What a disappointment. (laughs) Oh, the many ways you've spoken into my life, um, in the classroom and out of the classroom. Um, it's just been a great friendship and, uh, well, relationship that turned into a friendship. And um, I've really appreciated all of that. Uh, but I think I took every class that w- when you first got there, I took every class I could from, from you. I wanted to learn from the, the Oxford Dawn, the, the closest I could get to an Oxford Dawn. Um, and I just soaked all, every bit of it up. Uh, I th- we took, I mean, you taught Aristotle, uh, history of normative systems of ethics, uh, I, I was in the, the other, the medieval philosophy class. Um, it, it was just great. Great. And then getting to, uh, help source different references and help organize a little bit on your book. Um, I always thought it was really incredibly gracious that you even put my name in there. <laughs> um, but, uh, cause it was just a utter privilege to help, uh, the little bit that I did, um, on really, well, I really a- appreciated your help. Yeah. Well, cool. And and really, this is like your life work, you know, Um, and getting expressing your passion for for college kids. And it kind of came out of your own story. Um, That's what I loved about it. So, yeah. Yeah. Dave, um, 
uh, he, uh, the first time I heard of Dave, I'm going to uh, share one more warm anecdote. <laughs> the first time I heard of Dave was when I was in high school and I was at a guy's house. He's like a little Tolkien character. Well, I could, he, to me, he felt like C.S. Lewis and his last name was Lewis. His, his name was Gordon R. Lewis, and he was a high school mentor of mine. Oh, and wow. he was telling me about his students, and he said, there's this guy, Dave Horner, who's just fantastic, and he hmm. just gets it. He gets everything. And, uh, you know, he said, be like Dave Horner. You know, he didn't say it exactly <laughs> like that, but I just remember that name, and I remember him telling me about your your ministry at Stanford and just college ministry stuff. Mm. And that he was so proud of you. Wow. And uh, so Dave and I have the same mentor and teacher, Gordon R. Lewis. Yeah. And, um, and then Dave ended up being my professor there. Mm. So I was very well primed to pay close attention because Gordon told me many years before. And so I was paying extra careful attention. I'm, I'm really glad I did. Um, well, thanks. I, 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 yeah. I wish Gordon would have said that to other people, uh, <laughs> but at least you paid attention. And, yeah. You know, that's great <laughs> in, in a lifetime. If you can get one student to pay attention, you know, you're on the positive well, side of the ledger. When I saw you working on your dissertation up there, that to me was so intimidating to look at. Like it, you looked, you, you handled it with grace and everything, but it's not you. It was just that what you were telling me, like you were like, yeah, I basically have to write a second dissertation. And, and um, I've been working on this for years. And, and like, if, if they don't like it, you just fail. I was like, wait, you don't get grades. So he's like, no, no, you just write a book. And if they don't like it, you fail at the end <laughs> i was just like wait what school is this and, and he said <laughs> oxford and i wrote down I, I think i wrote down oxnard community college on accident so i was like what, what did he say oxnard what so i looked you know looked it up on the internets no but it was oxford it would just look so intimidating oxford and and then uh, when you passed, uh, we were all really happy for you and relieved and also kind of not really that surprised either, because obviously you put the work in. So anyway, OK, so we have this book called Mind Your Faith, a student's guide to thinking and living well. What I really love about this book is that. um you have in the very beginning uh, a connection with loving God with all your mind, but then you get right into some basic epistemology, which I found the most helpful in, in seminary, mm. which was when we got to the epistemology course, all of a sudden just things fell into place for me there. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge, the study of knowledge. And uh, you have this chapter called the truth about truth. And then the next chapter is the truth about belief and knowledge. And those are all epistemology words, 
we just wondered if you would mind uh, taking us through some of that material and, and why, why did you decide to put that stuff up front, relatively up front in that book? Well, maybe I'll, I'll step back a little bit. Um, I, I was, as you mentioned, um, from Gordon Lewis, I, I was in campus ministry work before I went into philosophy. Uh, so when I, when I graduated from college, I, I had gone through a, a, a period of, uh, you know, real doubt and questioning my faith and everything in college and was greatly helped by exposure to what was very, at that time, quite un, undeveloped, uh, the field of apologetics. Mm. Nothing like it is now. And uh, <clears throat> so I didn't know what to do. I thought I would probably try to do something in that area, maybe, but I had no idea how to go about it. Uh, but I knew I did need to uh, work on working with people. I love books, but I needed to figure out how to minister to people. So I went into campus ministry work and um, ended up eventually at, at Stanford. And at Stanford, I... Uh, I would speak, we had a Marxist dorm on campus. Uh, it was run by a Marxist. Mm. And, uh, and so they had sherry hours where they would supply the sherry and the speaker would show up and um, they would stick around. Students would stick around because there was sherry there for, you know, <laughs> because they're intellectually hungry. And uh, <clears throat> so I would go in and speak for 20 minutes and then take questions for two hours. And it was great. I thought, this is, this is what I want to do. Mm. But I also realized I didn't, there was so much I didn't know. And um, my good friend, Greg Gansel, uh, who was at that time on the East coast, we would uh, write each other. Uh, we would send cassette tapes of our reflections to each other to listen to, uh, to kind of think about, because we, years before, we had sort of plotted together. We thought, you know, we would like to get into the marketplace of ideas directly. Um, and we, we sort of pick up the pieces uh, in, on campuses of people who are, you know, struggling or asking questions and so on. And we're kind of on the outside we'd love to get on the inside. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but we didn't know exactly what to do, but independently we discovered philosophy as the field that got into that kind of stuff. And you could talk about it in classes, but also I thought there are no Christian philosophers. Um, and so this is like a hidden people's mission group, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and I'll probably be killed, martyred, <laughs> but I'm going to do it. Elizabeth Elliot. <laughs> yeah. And, and my friends who were going on to grad school, were all going to seminary to be pastors. And, and I had kind of thought, well, I guess that's what you do. Nobody was doing this. So Gansel and I kind of independently, but, you know, egging each other on, uh, we, we both started pursuing this. And that's how I ended up at Denver Seminary. Uh, to work with Gordon Lewis, because it was one of two seminaries in the country that actually 
had a philosophy program. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other yeah, one was in other, Chicago. This Trinity. one's in Denver. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Easy enough. <laughs> you know, uh, let me pray about it. Okay. Uh, so uh, it was twice as long and you had to learn Greek, but hey, Praise God. you know, and I'm really glad I did that. Um, yeah, me too. But, but yeah. one of the things that got me there also was uh, while I was still at Stanford, I attended a conference on the, on the Bible. It was a Congress on the Bible. They called it Francis Schaefer was there. Uh, it a bunch of big dogs and Denver seminary had a booth and there was this fiery little Italian guy who was manning the booth and it turned out he was in the philosophy program and he was a, he was a fighter sort of a dude. He had worked, for the mafia before he became a Christian. And uh, so we started talking and we got into this argument and he said, you got to come to Denver seminary. I said, no, I don't. Yes, you do. And he just starts <laughs> nailing me, you know, everything. I thought, Whoa, this is pretty good. So uh, that was another reason. So as soon as I got there, I got involved with this guy. He had an apologetics ministry uh, called Christian research associates. <laughs> So I plugged into that, um, and um, so, and then eventually uh, I I ran that for a few years, and then ended up in Boulder with the study center that you mentioned, Lucas. And uh, so, what I wanted to do was to to try to bring uh, to continue to work in philosophy uh, to get the the highest level I could. Uh, but also to kind of bring together these two worlds of engaging students, helping them think about important questions well, uh, those who are, uh, who are not followers of Jesus, to, to help them understand the gospel and the Christian worldview, those who are, uh, to help them think through their faith, because, uh, you know, I've witnessed a whole lot of shipwrecks, and, and a lot of them are just, it's just bad thinking. It's, it's poor understanding of things like science and so on. And so with the study center, we were able to do both of those sorts of things. And so eventually, um, an, a colleague and I came up with the idea of having a kind of conference where we pull a lot of this stuff together. And I came up with the name for it and I called it Universanity, how to go to college without losing your mind, your faith, or your character. That's I, good marketing. Yeah. And I trademarked it yeah. right away. We thought somebody, you know, somebody said, oh, that's good. Let's trademark. It. So, but those three pieces, mind, faith, character. So I'm, I'm, I'm very slowly making my way toward, toward uh, answering your question, Lucas, as usual. Uh, and, you know, as somebody's really interested in ethics and so on, you know, I, in, in spiritual formation, I think that the character piece is really crucial. Uh, so I wanted to bring all that stuff together. And we did have, we did have several versions of that conference and so on. Well, then it turned out that both of us, the other guy was Gary DeWeese, both of us ended up coming out here to Biola to teach philosophy. Hmm. And so we talked about maybe having 
you know, kind of doing the conference, but Gary said, no, we should write, we should write it and do a book. And um, so I dabbled around with that, but I was busy doing other straight academic things. But then I lost my health uh, in 2007. Uh, and I, I got to the point where I was, uh, we, I wasn't quite sure what was going on, but uh, it turned out to be an environmental sort of illness thing, um, mold toxicity, and as it turns out, Lyme disease. And so I was just, you know, I was desperate. I, I didn't know if I'd ever write anything again. Mm. So I had a summer of 2008. I had, I was scheduled to give a, several talks at a C.S. Lewis conference in Oxford and then to give a whole week of talks in Cambridge uh, for an apologetics network. So like, this is the dream, you know, boy, it just doesn't get any better than that. And, but it just became clear, especially given how moldy those places are, that there's no place, no way I'm, I'm going to be able to do it. And so I emailed everybody. This is in like April of 2008. I, I emailed the folks and said, you know, regretfully, I can't do it. And, you know, somewhere around that night, um, I, I, I got up in the middle of the night to use the facilities and I had, this is the only time I've, that I can think of where I had this experience, but it was like, it was like I had a voice. There was a thought that came into my mind just as clear as a bell. And that is, if you don't go to Oxford, if you can't go to Oxford, write universanity. Mm. Oh, okay. So. So that's really, I mean, the, the book is, is sort of like I was on a mission from God. It's like, if okay, if I can only do one thing, uh, I, I want to bring, I want to help college students. I want to bring together this stuff that I've been thinking about and working through and testing and trying out on students and stuff over all these years. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how it happened. And so the, the epistemology piece is, is part of it. I, 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 you know, the book actually, the, the publisher didn't like the word universality, so we went with mind or faith. But it does have those three parts, mind, faith, and character. And the mind bit, you know, it's foundational. And that's the more philosophical. Well, there's a lot of philosophical yeah. stuff, but I, I didn't want to use a lot of terminology uh, because I wanted it to be used for example, in courses that I teach here at Biola that are biblical studies courses and so on. Mm -hmm. So it, um, I wanted to make it very helpful philosophically without much of the terminology. And so, of course, like, like you, uh, Lucas, you know, I found epistemology extremely helpful in terms of laying a foundation for be, being able to make the sorts of distinctions then that you can use when you start talking about faith and character mm -hmm. yeah i i remember when when we were working together on it and you you had that that pre that singular focus you had said a couple of times to me that if this is the only thing i ever finish 
if this is the only thing. And and I because I remember a couple of times it was like, OK, I, I, it's, I I'm I get the whole mold thing. Can, can I help with the with publishing some stuff that you don't have already? And, he, and you were like, none of it. This is the one thing. <laughs> yeah, I've got I, and I really and this is where you come in uh, because I couldn't I could not read books at that right. time. Right. So I had no physical books. I was in an office with bare shelves. And um, and so how do you do research? You know, how do you look up all these things that you've collected? Even, yeah. even if it's that just that. Yeah. And so I needed you and it ended up a couple other people as well to, to, you know, track things down and, and, and help me do it. So I couldn't have done it without you. Oh, thanks. That's, that means a lot. Um, it was a privilege to help you and, and sitting in on your classes during that time too, I was always struck with, as you were going, you're going through and getting all these, these sources. I was just like, these kids have no idea the richness of experience that that you're sharing with them right now because you're you shared a lot of firsthand experiences um that that you only get to read about you know um and so yeah it was it was quite a privilege to hear those firsthand accounts right thanks yeah well one in particular i i think about is anscombe um when uh, sitting in sitting in court <laughs> That was a great story, but anyway. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm, uh, even though I have no Irish in me at all, I, I'm, I'm always happy to tell stories. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know if you were going to get into your health challenges, Dave, but that was an interesting take on it. Uh, I, I don't think I fully knew that. Maybe you told me that before, but, uh, and, and, you know, Lucas, before I forget, cause I'm of that age. Uh, can I in, in, uh, insert one more thing related to that? Hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The, because it's relevant to the, to the genesis of the book. So right at the same time uh, as this, as I, you know, I think the Lord just said, do it. Um, I, I had, um, and I'll back up a little bit on it as well. Uh, you know, you, you, Lucas, you mentioned about feeling intimidated, you know, with the Oxford thing. Well, let me tell you, you go over there, that's intimidating. And, um, and, and the British system is, you know, if you fail at the end, it's, that's it. Um, and so they kill uh, you, right? The, yeah. Something, <laughs> you know, something like that. Actually, when you, when you, when you do an exam, you have to wear your full regalia and uh and and the and and so this is for a doctoral oral exam they have rules that you have to be more than a sword length away from your examiners <laughs> just in case what one of one side or the other gets gets mad it's before metal detectors yeah <laughs> but uh um, walking in yeah Oh, dang it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, they didn't quite have that in 1200 when, when it was founded, but, but they had plenty of apparently people pulling out their swords, you know, in, in academic examinations. So, 
Great inflation was a temptation even back yeah, then. That's right. For that's different right. reasons. That's right. That's right. Oh, you don't like my grade. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, wow. So uh, that's cool. But, you know, and, and, you know, I, I know this is true wherever, you know, whatever graduate program, because there are all these really smart people there and all these high expectations. And yeah, you know, it's just, it's intimidating and you kind of right. lose your nerve, you know, you're, you're and, and I, I definitely felt that at Oxford. And, and, and so, uh, in fact, I think I'm still dealing with it, but, um, you know, you just, you, you, you can, you move from being a rather big fish in a small pond to being a very small fish in a big pond. And uh, it's, it's difficult to kind of find your feet. Well, that's, that's the way it had been post Oxford for me. Um, just what I, cause I used to would, I was looking recently back and uh, in some of my old stuff when I was doing that apologetics ministry, you know, I was speaking 20, 30 times a, a month in different contexts and stuff. How old were you when you're, were you, when you were doing the apologetics ministry? uh later 20s okay that, i think that's helpful maybe get a timeline for people so yeah. so later 20s you have later 20s and you're which you know you're not a, a total kid but you're you know it's not like you're in your early 20s or something so yeah. you're okay you are you married at this time yeah i'm married i have one child all right um, so you're fully on a seminary yeah you're bar mitzvah basically yeah you're fully um now you, <laughs> i had facial what, hair <laughs> did you have sideburns i had i had a beard i mean i've had oh, a beard kind of almost better. since birth now but. um so you were married and um now what how old were you when you went to denver seminary i i was i think 27 or 28 okay so, so and i the... got involved in the apologetics kind of right away so mm -hmm. for the next four or five years you know, I was doing that. I was doing a lot of speaking and how, and how old were you when you, when you went to Oxford for the first time? So it was, you know, somewhere around, I guess, 35, maybe 36. Okay, So you're not like some young, you're, well, you're not right after undergrad is what I'm right. trying to get. Yeah. At. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't just go straight through. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, that was a, that was a big benefit to me. I mean, there, you know, there are certainly downsides to it because you have less energy and time and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But uh, on the other hand, um, a lot of the intimidation that some of the grad students felt I didn't cause I was older and I didn't care as much, yeah. you know, Richard, Richard Swinburne who was my initial supervisor and he, he was a very intimidating person to most people. They were just cowering. And, yeah. you know, he and I became pretty good friends because, you know, I didn't, you know, I don't, I don't need that. But I would say in general, I was plenty intimidated by the environment and the expectations and just the sheer amazing, uh, you know, level of discourse and all that. And, so I lost, I kind of lost my nerve in, in a lot of ways, you 
know, um, when I came back, I wasn't sure how to write anything that wasn't kind of super technical mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> Oxfordish stuff. Yeah. And so that was the struggle. I mean, I think that was one of the big reasons why I, I didn't write Mind Your Faith earlier is I, I didn't know how to write it anymore. Now, how long did it take for you to get through Oxford from ages 35 to what? Well, it took me five years of, of as a student, but in, in, in there, my wife got seriously <laughs> ill. And so I had to take a, um, a year out uh, medical leave. So I think it was six years. It might've been closer to seven years. Okay. Um, I think, I, I can't, yeah, I can't remember all the, all the now, can you, uh, I think uh, it'd be helpful for people to, who aren't familiar with how Oxford is different than the United States model. Here you, you at Denver Seminary, you were taking courses like you would you normally think of. You take yeah. a, a semester-long course, you have exams and papers and quizzes, and, you, and then you get a grade at the end. And then you take another course. Maybe it's more advanced. Maybe it's kind of over here on the side. How is Oxford different for the PhD level? Yeah. Well, in general, for everybody, uh, all the way through undergrads and graduates, there's there really are no grades. Uh, so you have uh, personal tutorials. So how, that's how you write you know, papers. That's and, how you and, know if you suck. Is it if they just tell you in the tutorial? Yeah. This, this and if sucks. they don't, which they're you know, some do and some don't. <laughs> um, but what what you're doing is preparing to take exams at the very end. And so at the very end of your three years as an undergrad, you will put on your, your gowns and you will ride your bike to in the examination schools and you will get blue books and you will write out essays uh, under you know time constraints and then those are graded ruthlessly by someone other than your tutors mm. and that's for the undergrad that's for the undergrad but that's the way they've been formed you know that's the way students think about things so the grad is uh, so i did a master's degree and a doctorate there so the master's degree was more like the undergrad thing it was tutorial and and a and then a set of exams at the end plus a thesis. And um, then for the, for the, in, at Oxford, they call it a DPhil. The PhD is called a DPhil. And it's, it's pure research. So you're writing, you have a, a, an advisor, uh, and that advisor might farm you out for different chapters uh, a little bit. But then at the end, basically, you submit it and you have two examiners who are not your advisors, one from Oxford and one from outside. And they say yay or nay. Mm. Um, So it really like the undergrad, but in a more intense way, it all depends on the very end. How are those people chosen? Are they just randomly chosen? You have you have a say in it. You can request um, people, and 
Um, but, you know, when, before I went, uh, quick story, uh, before I went to Oxford, I was, um, I taught in the, in the Soviet Union at an underground seminary for a, a few weeks in the fall of 1990. So it was just before the Soviet Union fell. And I, I could tell lots of stories about that. Um, well, I came out of that and I visited different places in Europe that I was thinking about possibly going. And my family came in and joined me in Germany and we, you know, we went to these different universities and ended up at Oxford. Um, but at, in, before we went from the continent of Europe over to England, uh, we stayed with William Lane Craig and his family, Bill Craig. And he, had, he was one who had encouraged me to, to go to Oxford. And, and again, at that time, there just weren't all kinds of people doing this sort of thing. So, you know, are there, he, are, are there now? Yeah. I mean, they're just, okay. there's, there are a lot of Christian philosophers now. So that's a span of what, 30 years. Yeah. What, wh yeah, when did, it, when did, uh, when did Craig, where, where were you in with Craig? Were you, what, what country were you again? Again, in Belgium, he lived in Belgium. Okay. So, so he's he, in Leuven or in Leuven. yeah. So he was, a, uh, you know, he's, <laughs> Of course, a phenomenon, but he could he could lecture uh, in French, German, and English. Yeah, and uh, so they lived there, and he was he was basically an apologist in Europe. Yes, and uh, and he was one of a kind. So there there were yeah. there were several, and J.P. Moreland and I actually went back uh, to 1970. Um, which is another story, but he was, JP was really coming into his own and he was kind of a mentor to Gansel and me. Um, and Bill Craig just came up on the radar. I'd never met him, but I wrote him and he was helpful. And he's, he encouraged me to, to apply, to go to Oxford. So anyway, as we, these are all Biola professors in case you yeah, know, but you're it, not aware. You know, none of this happened at Biola at the time. I mean, that, that, that's why no I met, that's why I pointed out yeah so. yeah and that's one of the reasons that there are so many people doing this sort of thing now is Biola uh, it's it's just this movement that occurred uh, really beginning in the in the mid 1990s or late 1990s but so there was no top down like Biola meeting in 1970 <laughs> no that said, no, if there were, we if, need more Christian yeah. philosophers, ha ha ha. And you know, no, if there, if there had been a meeting about <laughs> it, it would have been voted down. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Especially so this, at that time. Yeah. yeah. This was top down in the sense that it was from God. From God. It was, yeah. It was it, there's no, up. there's no, yeah, there's just no. In fact, when I, when I was thinking, when I was still working on my dissertation and I had moved back to Colorado when we met, uh, in, in, the, in that time, the, the last time I went over there in, during the summer to meet with my supervisor before I was ready to submit my dissertation, um, he said, do you have, we, we, we went out for breakfast. He said, do you have any, uh, and this was not Swinburne for my D for my DPhil. Uh, do you, do you have any better uh, job prospects? 
because I was I was just cobbling together, you know, teaching at Denver Seminary, teaching at Dayspring. I was a worship pastor in church, and I sometimes was was uh, working construction and putting up uh, signs and housing developments. And uh, I said, well, I have some friends out in California that have a an MA program in philosophy, and they have. Uh, 90 graduate students in their program, which eventually we had 140 out here. But, mm. and he said, 90? Why, that's more than at Oxford. <laughs> and Oxford is the largest philosophy faculty in the world. There are 80 people teaching philosophy at Oxford. And they have probably 40 grad students, 45 grad students. And that, you know, was like, oh, wow, uh, this is significant. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, back to Bill Craig. Uh, he's, yeah, he go, told go me the to story. Your, yeah. He told me, you know, the next day we're, we're, we're getting on the ferry to go over to, to England. And I was going to meet with a couple of guys in, in Cambridge and, and three or four people in Oxford, including Swinburne. And he and and uh, Bill said, told me the story of of his friend, who uh, had similar background to to us, and uh, went to Oxford, wrote his wrote his dissertation, got to the exam, a hostile atheist uh, philosopher uh, was one of his examiners, and he failed it. It was over. And it was super traumatic for this guy, for his wife, uh, and so on. He he eventually was able to get a PhD in the United States and and have a very productive career as a as a philosopher. But anyway, so I I knew that that was a possibility, which increased the intimidation factor. Yeah, and so I would say, you know, so by the time I started work on um, mind your faith. It had been eight years or so, uh, mm-hmm. since I'd left Oxford, I had written a, a number of articles and encyclopedia things and so on that were, were more academic. I just didn't know how to write, you know, kind of at this level anymore. And so I, I've already described that kind of voice in the night, but then this, this is the other thing that happened right about the same time. I'm, I'm not sure exactly the, the chronology, but I got a letter from this woman whom I'd never met. And she said, you know, that article you wrote or those articles you wrote that were in this evangelistic magazine mm-hmm. in, in 1990. So this is now, you know, 18 years later. She's getting her hair cut at a Christian barber. She's looking at the magazines <laughs> yeah. that they keep there. Yeah, actually, she said, I've, I, I've gotten all the back issues I can. I give them away. Oh. And I've Xeroxed what, you know, because they're, they're, they're gone now. So I've Xeroxed the, you know, stuff. They're all beat up. And I'm just, I'm writing you to say, is there, are there any more? Mm-hmm. Now, I'd, I'd basically forgotten I ever wrote these things. But they were, uh, in, in, 
but I'll go back to it. So she mm-hmm. said, can you, pl-, she said, please keep writing mm-hmm. like this for people like me. Mm-hmm. And what it was, was in, wow. in 1990, I'm in Boulder. Wow. I, I thought, you know, these hard questions that people have, yes. maybe we should think of them not as, as uh, problems to avoid, but as openings, you know, to, to truth. So yes, yes. I took this, I took this idea, the religious pluralism question, how can, you know, how can there be one true religion given all the options? And, uh, and I just went straight into it and said, basically, how can Jesus be the only way to God? Well, let's look at the positive side of that. If that's true, there is a way to God. <laughs> it's that's good news. Yeah. And yeah. if it's a if it's an actual way, then of course it's going to be exclusive. Yeah. I tell my students, you know, we have this cabin in Colorado, our family, and when I, when I invite people to come visit it, I say, well, here's here's how you get there. You take the road, you know, left-hand <laughs> right. Right. right down and you get at the top of the hill. And I, you know, I don't say anything about interstates in California or you know, broad, <laughs> Broadway and New York. And, or anything. and no one interprets that as you being a Debbie Downer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just There's say one particular I, way to get there. The only way I, I'm the only reason I mentioned this particular road is that's the road that goes there. <laughs> yeah. And the fact is not all roads go there. And this is good news. You can come yeah. up this, there. Yeah. You can me. come up to the Horner cabin. And how much better would it be? You know, can you imagine saying, well, there's a cure for AIDS. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it doesn't matter if you one, take it. it. There's only one you know, way, though. All, all cures are equal. Well, that just means <laughs> none of them work. Mm. Um, and so anyway, I, I, so I wrote a series of articles on, uh, you know, kind of short thing. The main thing on, uh, on that um, are all religions created equal that's what she was referring to yeah and then a sidebar on tolerance Mm -hmm. and a sidebar on the blind men and the elephant what was the name of the magazine again it's called um a separate piece p-e-a-c-e and it was a it was a publication of campus crusade it's Mm -hmm. been these articles have been translated into other languages uh and in fact the the blind men and the elephant thing it's still all over the internet out there (laughs) Uh, it's kind of funny, but anyway, I get this letter from her, you know, just asking me to do it. And so as I did what I'm just describing right now, as I thought back, okay, what was I thinking when I did that? And how was I, oh, okay, well, that's the sort of thing I should do with this book. And it's kind of funny because I, I mean, she, she said, you've never met me, blah, blah, blah. So years later, I wrote her and I said, well, thank you for sending me that letter. And she's kind of going, what letter? You know, she doesn't remember <laughs> ever writing me or anything, but it was like, it was this thing. Another thing, I think just, you know, what are the chances after 18 yeah. years, she's going to pick that time to, to write this guy. She doesn't know. She tracked down at, at Biola and, you know, ask him to do this. And wow. again, she doesn't even remember it. So. I, I really did feel like I was on a, you know, as the Blues Brothers would say, you know, I was on a mission from on a God. Mission from God. 
<laughs> yeah, that that that's almost that almost qualifies as miraculous. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, there's so many things as I'm hearing you talk about this. There, you've brought up your health. You've brought up your unique uh, educational experience. Uh, the names and people that you had the honor of being friends with and knowing. Um, there's there's all sorts of things. I'm imagine that this might go into an archive and be found years later. <laughs> And it might be points of this conversation that are interesting to people that you don't particularly think are interesting to the people. For example, the fact that she wrote you a letter. Hmm. Um, how did you, so I'm just going to ask you a few little cultural things for people later. How did you set up the meetings with people in Cambridge and Oxford when you were visiting Bill Craig? Was that all by mail or was that phone calls? How was that done? Because now we, it's so easy with email, but right back then it was not like that. So tell us how, how you got all on the same page as far as meeting in the same place at the same time. Yeah, I think it must've been letters written. I just, uh, I kind of guessed, um, you know, I, sort of tried to figure out who might be good to contact and they were they were very quite gracious mm -hmm. they um, would return your letter yeah they would write back um and then once i got over there i i phoned you know once i got in the right kind of time zone and got a little bit nearer if they had agreed to do it then i think i i had some phone conversations um that to kind of to set the times exactly yes. and so on. In fact, um, they, they didn't all, all the, the phone conversations did not always go well. I mean, I, there's, there's <laughs> one, there's one bad example. So th these are uh, phones attached to walls. Just yeah. FYI. These are phones attached to walls. They're not to, no one's texting you or anything like that. It, but, but Bill Craig had said, well, you should contact me. And then another guy that had gone to Denver seminary had also done a doctorate with, Wolfhart Pannenberg. And so, okay, well, I'll give him a try. <laughs> so I'm over in Germany uh, trying to set up a time with Pannenberg on the phone. Oh, wow. And he insisted in only speaking German <laughs> on the phone, even though he probably speaks English better than I do. And, uh, and so you know, that was third grade level conversation, which <laughs> so we ended up not having me yeah, Cof yeah. coffee, you <laughs> Tuesday. Yeah. What are you thinking yeah. about? In stuff. So, so anyway, but you know, the, the other guys, it was great. And, 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 and wow. a funny anecdote with, with, with uh, Richard Swinburne. Hmm. He, uh, I, I was thinking about doing something on the moral argument for the existence of God, because that I thought would be a nice sort tell, of tell people what that is. Just okay. briefly. so it's it's basically it's, well, first of all, it is a it's a the conclusion is that God exists. That's what an argument yes, is. It's got to have a conclusion. Yeah. And then the evidence has something to do with moral reality. Yeah, that's right. So it's 
basically the idea that best, maybe one way to put it, the best, the best explanation mm-hmm. for the existence of objective moral values and obligations and so on is that uh, this, the reality is like that. And the best reason, best explanation for that is that it's created by a person, a moral person with moral uh, reasons and intentions and has a, a kind of moral design. So molecules don't have moral properties and uh, and so on. So naturalism just does a really terrible job at grounding the existence of all this stuff. So it's it's uh, it's actually something I'm now back at working on. Uh, I'm I'm writing a chapter in a book on the history of the moral argument uh, published by Oxford. Um, but you know, when I first went, was thinking about going over that, that's the sort of thing I want to work on. Well, Richard Swinburne doesn't like those arguments. <laughs> and, and so we got into this big argument about it. Uh, about the in, ar- in, in argument, his argument, argument, in his office. In a different sense. Yeah. And, and so he's just drilling me and I'm trying to respond. I'm figuring, okay, this is clearly I'm not coming here. But hey, I'll give it my best shot. Mm. Well, it turns out he really liked that, oh, and okay. so he nominated me for a a, a British government scholarship, which mm. I got, uh, and, and I got it because Richard Swinburne nominated me for it. Uh, so that's a, a, a you know one of the things about philosophy is having a good argument, you know, in the sense of getting into a good argument with someone. Mm-hmm. Can be a really great thing, and 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 it's not a bad thing. Yeah, uh, it and that's that's something that philosophy can help in our our uh, present moment. I think uh, when people are just you know everything's a microaggression and everybody's worried about this and that, and, and we've got to be really nice to people. You know, you can be really gracious and loving and respectful to people and disagree with them and give good reasons for your position. And we, so, you yeah, know, sorry. that make, no, no, that just, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I, it, you're, you're touching on something. I think that you delivered so well through my time with you and in, in, as a student. Um, and that's that, that what you're doing in that moment, when you're arguing with someone, it, you're exemplifying virtues mm-hmm. and you're, you're flourishing as a human person and you can do that flourishing well, or you can do it poorly. Right. And so when, when you're loving and kind, you're, you're showing courage, you're doing all this stuff, you're kind of living fully in a sense. And that's inspiring. And it was inspiring to Swinburne. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. So anyway, so that's another anecdote that's, that might be interesting uh, for somebody who ever thinks about doing something like this, that yeah, it yeah. actually, to my surprise, I mean, I, I left there thinking, well, that's the end of that. Um, but so he, Dave, yeah, he Dave, Dave, what, what's interesting and compelling about your story is that you, you didn't have, you weren't one of these guys that went to college. You went to CSU Boulder or well, CSU Boulder. You went to CSU Fort Collins, right? No. For your undergrad. Um, it's not like you came out of high school going, 
I want to teach philosophy and this is, you know, I'm going to do this step and this step. Some people do, but you went kind of this way and, and, uh, and then ended up at this nice office at Biola. Um, what was that like? Was that, I mean, you already said you're incredibly anxious and, and fearful at, uh, at Oxford, but, uh, the whole journey seems kind of fraught with uncertainty. Yeah. And, well, uh, do, looking back, would you do it the same way or? Yeah, it's, that's such a hard question to, to answer, you know? Um, well, this, okay. I'll give you an easier question then. Um, but I, you know, why, I mean, does, why does your book not have any pie charts and, and fa- <laughs> facts in it? I'm talking about like, you know, I don't see any like scatter plots or I mean, just like there's no facts and um, <laughs> there's no statistics. That's what I look for. I look for pictures and I almost threw it away to be honest with you. Yeah, I did not well, see a single pie chart. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a real, that's a real weakness of the book. There's, there's no question. Um, uh, it, it's there's no utterly, science in it. It would Dave. be utterly irrelevant the science? to what we're doing, but Yeah. So as soon as we ask what is science, we're doing philosophy, uh, and and there's no there's no set of statistics or pie charts that can help you answer that question. Mm-hmm. What is science? So this is this is more that sort of book. Um, that's that pe- people, you know, who struggle with their faith because they think that somehow science has has shown that it's false or something. They that yeah. that's because they misunderstand what science is and what it can do mm-hmm. as gk chesterton said when you know to the to the question to the to the objection well science has proved that there is no god he said well which experiment was that <laughs> you know it that's a uh, clearly a misunderstanding of what science is and what science can do and that's what how philosophy is, is try to figure out okay what kind of questions are we talking about here and again, statistics and pie charts just, just are of no help there. They're great f- when you're doing science, perhaps, but not when you're thinking about science. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I had no concept of this uh, growing up. I, I, mm. I, I would say I did have some really good things uh, that I just didn't know the word philosophy to with them necessarily yes Yes. but i I grew up in a church where the pastor actually was a clear thinker and he was he engaged the text of scripture really well but he also was able he he was conversant with uh, other uh thoughts and you know thinkers and and i had a high school uh youth guy who had actually lived and worked at Labrie with Francis Schaefer. Oh, that's cool. So wow. I had some pretty amazing things. That's cool. What was uh, the name of that church that you mentioned? It's called Castle? Calvary Church in Longmont, Colorado. Is it still there? Yeah. And the guy that was the, the great, the, the pastor who, who was, I now realize was extraordinary. I mean, he was like 23 years old. What was his name? Do you recall? Leith Anderson. 
Oh, oh no way. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. So he, he, he went on to bigger and better things, clearly, <laughs> you know, president of the National Association of Evangelicals and all that. But I mean, so I, I looking back, I realized, oh, wow. <laughs> I had, I had, I was better educated than all my friends Wow. Uh, growing up just because I went to church. Oh man, and, that's a huge point. I never made that connection. Yeah. I've known you 22 years. First time I've made that yeah. connection. So he was a president. But, but of I, didn't know, Seminary, I didn't right? know the word philosophy so much, you know, I, I, but then I started reading Schaefer and, you know, I loved what he was doing. And, and I, 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 so I, I was intrigued by uh, philosophers, particularly the existentialists. Um, but, you know, then I went to college, when I went to Colorado state, I took a couple of philosophy classes, but they were kind of weird and they, they just weren't really doing the thing. Uh, so, uh, in, in my family, you know, my uncle was a theologian, uh, and was a liberal. And so, you know, I was certainly not, in, uh, encouraged to go down that path. You mean he taught theology? He was, uh, he was a, uh, watch, how should I put it? He was a dean of, of, uh, of a Presbyterian seminary. He was a missiologist primarily okay. oh. uh, over in, in, in Africa. And he was at the Neary School of Theology in, in Beirut, Lebanon, hmm. and then an American um, uh, Presbyterian seminary. And he was pretty liberal. And so my parents were not real excited about kind of that path. Using him as a resource. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, they didn't graduate from college, my parents. Mm. And uh, so, and, and my brother uh, worked with Campus Crusade and was kind of my chief role model. Mm-hmm. And he was... What was his name? Bob, Bob Horner. And he's just, you know, a star in that world, mm-hmm. uh, as a, as, as in doing speaking and evangelism and discipleship and I o- so older brother. Him. Yeah. 15 years older. Okay. So that's quite, that's quite a bit. So for me to kind of come to this way of thinking was, was really, you know, it was just not something my family, I, I just had no preparation for it. And, um, Besides and one of, one of the things I had to do, actually, when I came to Denver Seminary to study philosophy, I, 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 I got counseling about it. And my counselor said, you need to talk to your brother about what you're doing. And, uh, you know, he may not like it, but if, if he can just understand kind of this different path you're taking. So we met at McDonald's for breakfast and I laid it out and he said, bro, that's great. Mm. That's great. Just don't get weird. <laughs> As if too late. You know, I, yeah, too late. Uh, and he's been my he's been my biggest fan ever since. I mean, I I, I can't say enough about That's how great, great that was. So so our paths, which had really kind of been quite similar, now started, but great. Um, you know, great appreciation for each other and respect for each other. And so on. he's, he's still, you know, we're still extremely close. Mm. And uh, so, you know, this is related to the fact that 
And like, like I say, I knew I met JP Moreland in 1970. How'd he that was, happen? We're, he came, he graduated from college and came to Boulder to, to serve with Campus Crusade at the University of Colorado. And his director was my brother. Oh. And okay. I was a junior high kid, 12 miles away. Mm-hmm. And that's, so that's how we met. It's a small world. Yeah. And so he obviously made an impact on you somehow. Yeah. If, I mean, at that yeah. age. And he, yeah. What was it you about know, him that? Uh, well, I, I mean, I just remember inspired. meeting him okay. and right. he was of common name and he was a, he was yeah. kind of a firecracker, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> and then he, he left, you know, after a couple of years, he, he moved to Vermont, I think, and, and so on. But then, then when I went on staff with Campus Crusade, that's, so that was the campus ministry group. I was a, where I met Greg Gansel, uh, JP starts reemerging, uh, and he was going to, he was, he was studying philosophy. And oh, so okay. that's when Greg and I both contacted him and he kind of started mentoring us from afar, mm-hmm. because as I, as I said, there just wasn't, you know, especially in our circles, there just, you know, there weren't role models. We yep. didn't know that there were Christian philosophers. We eventually came to discover, you know, Al Plantinga and stuff. Mm -hmm. He existed. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And so basically there was Al Plantinga and then in at at Oxford was Basil Mitchell, whom I actually got to become, you know, uh, friends with, thankfully, you know, Um, but that was it as far as we knew. And then JP is coming up. And so he's kind of helping us. Uh, Of course, Gordon Lewis. uh, Yes. And, uh, but his emphasis, Gordon Lewis's emphasis was more on new age movement and, mm-hmm. and cults and, and all that kind of stuff. So he wasn't kind of into the same sort of thing that like Al Plantinga was, but, um, you know, we're right. just kind of, we're finding our way. Yeah. Talbot, the, the Talbot program at Biola didn't exist. No. And, um, in fact, uh, another quick anecdote. So we had this, this study center in Boulder and two of us are philosophers in it, Gary DeWeese and myself. And so JP would come out in the summers and teach for Campus Crusade in their summer Institute of Biblical Studies up in Fort Collins. So we would always get together. So I said, I tried to recruit him to come to Boulder to Dayspring. And uh, so had him come down. He, he spoke in our church because we started a church as well. What um, year was this? This what was, year? oh gosh. Or roundabout. Maybe early 90s, something okay. like that. All right. So and he would have just been I had him come and starting speak. Biola. Yeah. I had him speak at, uh, this was before he came to Biola. Uh, he was at, he, he wasn't happy where he was. And uh, so I had him, he met with, with uh, Gordon Lewis and so on, but uh, you know, it would be another gig of having to raise support and all that kind of stuff. Cause it was a hybrid deal between Denver seminary and day spring. And, you know, he just, he, 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 he wasn't into doing that so much anymore. He'd done it plenty. Um, and yeah. Plus he had a guy that, uh, a colleague that they, they had just kind of decided they were going to go together wherever mm-hmm. they went. Mm-hmm. 
Right. You know, and, uh, and, and so, but anyway, he said, yeah, uh, he, he told me that at that point, he said, there's a place, I can't tell you where it is, but we are, they're, they're talking about maybe starting a, PA, uh, a, a master's program in, in, in philosophy, a theological seminary. And, uh, and so that's what I'm exploring right now. And, and that, you know, that might be where I end up. And that was Talbot. So just like the next year, this program here started and JP came in and, and he and Scott Ray somehow convinced the administration that this would be a good idea. And, you know, the rest is, is history. I don't know if that was, I think that was, you know, it was early nineties, some, somewhere in there. There, there were, quite a few people doing philosophy that were not well known they weren't really go-getters in terms of missionary yeah i I would say the biola program is a explicitly missionary focus i would say it's got that mindset because i mean we didn't even mention dallas willard who who is the reason why jp and he he was no spring chicken yeah even at that time he had been around for a while and uh, Gordon Lewis has a book called Testing Christianity's Truth Claims, which the entire, uh, the as you know, the entire table of contents is different philosophers mm-hmm. that existed, had existed for decades uh, that he goes through, like Gordon Clark and, and um, J. Oliver Buswell and uh, John Edward Carnell, those big names, uh, but they but I, I would say maybe uh, the analytic tradition, I think, is, is the, 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 in terms of breaking into PhD programs, specifically an analytic philosophy that had grown up, you know, uh, post Gettier and post, uh, post logical positivism in the United States, um, not so much focused on like the continental stuff. Yeah existentialism but it's an interesting story of how you how you got there and um i guess your i wanted to also say about your health challenges the the tremendous uh, my heart went out to you so much when when i had heard about the challenges you had especially how torturous they must have it must have been for you specifically with books how did that how did your illness affect your ability to deal with old books like books you hold in your hand yeah for for a oxford scholar who had been in the how do you say it the bodlin library bodlin bodlin had did you spend much time in that library yeah. when you were there? Yeah, it's what was the, that like? It's What's like the, the best library? place on earth. It's, tell me, tell me about it. Describe it for people. Uh, well, it's multiple stories uh, of these old these these big rooms with huge, very high ceilings and windows. All the lighting is through pretty much. I think is is window lighting, uh, and uh, it's I don't know. I guess it's sort of like uh, Downton Abbey or something like that. <laughs> and then there's this 
there's there are these different nooks and crannies, different rooms, and you can you can have uh, they call them reading rooms. And so if, if you want to read, and it's not a lending library, you can't take anything out of there. Uh, all, the, all most of the books, and it's you know this is one of the largest libraries in the world. Most of the books are underground, and there are little little men who live down there. <laughs> hell, and so they're going along. Hell, <laughs> and and so what you have to do is you you fill out this. I, it may be different now. <laughs> it was it was well, so. Where do you think Tolkien got ideas for yeah. Lord of the Rings? Yeah, it was so medieval when I was there. And we're I think the whole 90s. thing's digital now. It's all digital now. Yeah. <laughs> One of them escaped. One of them escaped, and Tolkien oh, was like, "I have ideas for." Yeah, books that's now. right. That's right. They're hobbits. That's that's what they are. Um, and so you had to you had to write out, and, and they would have pots. They would have ink ink uh pots i guess they call them on the the so every reading room had a desk and you you'd go up there with to to fill your your you know it could have been your quill pen wow but your fountain pen uh, you know from this ink pot that's and um but if you want a book you you find you figure out what it is and they, you know, they had card catalogs and so on. And then they did have a computer thing where you could look them up and you have to fill it out in great detail. And then you, sub, you put it in a, in a, like a slot and then you come back the next day. And as you walk up the stairs to these different rooms, there are these pigeonholes. And so you find the one, you know, they're alphabetical and you find the one that might have your book in it. And or no, your your slip, and it will say, yeah, your book is up in room reading room three. So you go up to the third floor to reading room three, and you go up to the desk and you hand them this piece of paper, and they extract the book and give it to you. And then you have to say which seat you're sitting in, in case somebody else needs to see that book. Uh, so it's it's so old school, but just so cool, mm-hmm. and it's just yeah, it's it's like paradise. In fact, uh, when I was <laughs> ill, uh, as I was one of the one of the strategies, treatment strategies was a kind of neuroscience, kind of trying to reformulate your your neural pathways and so on. Um, that that JP kind of turned me on to this, but the, 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 this person that was, was talking to us about it. they said, now think about, you know, if you were to be healed, you know, if you were to be better, what, what would be this, the sort of experience that you Mm -hmm. could imagine to be sort of that thing that you, you look forward to. And, and it was, for me, it was to be in a bod land. Uh, to be in those, you know, one of those rooms. So yeah, for me, and you know, my special, my specialty is in ancient medieval philosophy. Oxford's a medieval university. I, you know, I just love all that stuff. I love old books and and a a bunch of my books came from Oxford and they're full of mold, which is one of the reasons I, I got ill, but yeah, it was, it was really hard. And, um, I said to my grad students, 
Well, I said to my undergrad students, you know, I can't have books. I'm allergic to books. I can't have books. And they, they would go, then why are you assigning us all these books? <laughs> you know? And I'd say to my grad students, uh, you know, I, I can't, I can't use my books. And, and they would say, I'll take your books. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, it was hard and it was in, you know, I mean, one of the things that's been, that was really hard is, you know, this, that it lasted 12 years and Basically, you know, I, I used to go to conferences and read papers and, you know, be a, a, a fairly well-respected person in, in, you know, a certain area and be one of the players. And all that is, is pretty much still gone, uh, although perhaps some of it's coming back a little bit, but uh, it just you know, the, the loss, the sort of the, yeah, the loss of dreams and expectations and kind of where you, you think you're going to be and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, that's, that's yeah. a hard, hard part of it. And, um, yeah, you know, that's what you, you have to wrestle with the Lord about it and realize, you know, there are more important things than that. So you said, was i know she said was is is the illness still there is it still with See, the you? philosopher always <laughs> was you said was what, what do you mean by was it was hard um, yeah yeah it was hard um so is, is yeah it still so hard? in in about three years ago uh, i it had gotten so bad that i went on disability i didn't think i could teach anymore mm -hmm. and uh so the spring semester of 2019 um, and at the end of that semester, I had mm -hmm. an opportunity to, the, Biola was, was trying to get rid of people like me, you know, old, uh, expensive faculty members. And so they had a golden parachute sort of deal where, you know, if, if you're old enough, uh, you know, you can apply to, to resign and you get, you have a year of pay and, and healthcare. And then you're gone, you're done. And I thought, what, what alternative do I have? I mean, at mm -hmm. least I, that would be a good opportunity, but mm -hmm. thing is, I don't, what am I going to do after that? I can't work. Mm -hmm. uh, so how am I going to have, how am I going to do, how am I going to live? And uh, my wife, who is much more spiritually sensitive than I am, she said, I think the Lord told me it, it's going to, you know, this is going to be over soon. Okay. Well, I'll, I'm, I'll trust your faith on this. You didn't interpret that as you're going to die. No. <laughs> no. America is ending. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Uh, yeah. That, that would be one that, that could satisfy that, you know. <laughs> description but um, okay, I'm, I'm writing that in my notes okay he's yeah. not, a co not a communist <laughs> went to the soviet union okay. yeah. but um so anyway i mean it's that's a real long story but um through a combination of uh, you know I'd, I'd already done all the medical stuff that could be done that i knew of um 
I, I really wanted to pursue this neuro, uh, you know, uh, brain stuff uh, because I knew, you know, just what little I knew from what JP had told me and so on and had read, you know, that's, that's an important part of, of our health is, you know, from a biblical perspective, we're, uh, you know, interdependent, uh, integrated sorts of beings. We have a physical aspect for sure. We've got psychological aspect. We've got spiritual stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just hadn't explored these other things. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I did a lot with, turns out a whole bunch of people with kind of my stuff had been really helped by the brain stuff, kind of practices to um, form new neural pathways and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But then also the spiritual um, battle aspect of it. And so it culminated, started doing all that kind of stuff. I had to, I had to choose on by May 3rd, whether or not to accept the golden parachute thing. And my wife and I uh, chose to attend a, a, a conference thing in Georgia where they do a lot of spiritual warfare stuff to leave on May 4th to go to that. And so wow, wow. by faith, I did not accept the golden parachute thing. Wow. And we went down there and that really was the extra oomph, I guess I needed. Uh, but she could really tell the difference over the course of the week. My voice changed. Um, I, 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 I can tell you that I just felt lighter and lighter and lighter every day. They were just doing a lot of spiritual battle sort of prayer stuff. So I came back and went to a bookstore. Wow. You know, for the first time. Wow. In all those years. In 12 uh, years. I can use, so you saw the books you see. Yes. They're, uh, th those are our books that are, you know, they're, they're not in plastic bags. Um, they are real books and some of them are old books. Praise God. Um, and so, yeah, it's just extraordinary. I can use a library. Um, but I, you know, kind of working through all the other stuff about it is still a process. Like, cause I, you know, now I'm older. Mm -hmm. um, what is it the Lord wants me to do? It'd be kind of nice if you'd do another one of those middle of the night voice things. <laughs> <laughs> and some lady would write me a letter, uh, but yeah. I'm, I'm relearning, you know, given this, the, the, the stage of life I'm in and, and so on, but it's, yes. it's, it's coming back. And, uh, like I say, I'm, I'm, I'm interestingly getting quite interested in the moral argument stuff. And it's, um, I'm, I'm starting to contribute in that area. So would you say that you went through a dark night of the soul or is that how you would describe it? You know, I don't know enough about that. Mm -hmm. you know, St. John of the cross and all that, but it was certainly, it was certainly <laughs> I don't a dark know enough night. about it. Let me, let me list all the people that have discussed it. And I don't know enough yeah. about those people, <laughs> but I mean, I haven't read know, it, I mean, it, it. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a technique. <laughs> it can be a technical term or it can just, you know, it's a use mentioned distinction. 
but if this was a black church, we would all be jumping up and down and <laughs> praising God and stuff, but we're all, well, I haven't read St. John. I haven't read the latest dissertation. It depends on you. On... Well, it sort of depends on what you mean by dark and soul and night and <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Philosophers are just, it, you know, it's just, Idiots. it's just so fascinating. You know, <laughs> we just really get it, you know, <laughs> but, or not, <laughs> or not, but yeah, in terms of, uh, I mean, I, it, it seems to me like that would be a good description of it. It was just, you know, uh, at, you know, the first year w- was like, Oh, okay. I, I, it was sort of like if we were in Ukraine right now and we were Ukrainians, mm. you know, you're, 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 the adrenaline's going, okay, this is what we do. And this is going to be really hard and we might die, but this is what we're doing. Mm. Uh, as Samuel Johnson said, when you're on the gallows, you know, it focuses uh, your attention. Yeah. And so I'd say that first year, it was in some ways, it was just so ridiculous. Here I am a professor. I can't have books. I, I moved out of my house for a while. I was, I, I had kind of a hazmat suit thing, you know, I mean, it was just what, what's going on. Uh, and, and I had, I had been thinking in, in the year or so prior to that, I've been kind of wondering, you know, I wonder what it would be like if I really suffered. I don't know if I can handle it. You know, my life has been really good. And so this was sort of like, well, okay. Yeah. And the Lord's meeting me here and okay. Um, if I die, I die, you know? Um, yeah. And so I, it was hard, but it, it, you know, I handled it pretty well, but then it went on for another 11 years. That, it, that had its own challenge. It's just like, oh, you know, when's it going to end? And it, it's maybe this is never going to end and I'm just mm-hmm. going to be kind of limping through <laughs> that had its, it was its own kind of dark night. Of the yes. Soul. Yes. Well, I you saw know, that you handled oh. Y2K well. And so I, you handled that suffering really well. I saw that with my yeah. eyes. There was a great deal of suffering at that time. <laughs> so, oh yeah, it's, it's January 1st. Oh, gee. <laughs> well, Dave, as you're, as you're talking about, like now I'm, I'm kind of coming back. It, it's coming back. There's, I'm getting more involved doing reaching out and now you're back into moral, moral arguments. Um, I came across an article uh, sometime in the last year uh, that you had written. I, I can't even remember what it, I came across it on the internet when I was doing a search. Um, and uh, it was the more moral apologetics. Yeah. And I thought, Oh, this is, the, I mean, I immediately when I saw that you wrote it, I was like, Oh, that's fitting. I got to read this. Um, and as I read it, I was, I, I really, liked how it approached culture um and where we're at you know it's it's almost like the pre-work <laughs> yeah that needs to be done do you want to talk a little bit maybe yeah. how yeah yeah so there is a thing now called moral apologetics and and so the uh there's a series of books coming out and and so this this 
chapter that I mentioned is kind of part of that. Mm. Um, and, and, but the, the, pe- the people who, and so I'm actually on the board of the Center for Moral Apologetics or something like that at Houston Baptist University. And that's really where a lot of this is happening. Some really good people there. Um, but back when I, when I first talked about this was over in Europe at uh, the European Leadership Forum thing. And they specifically asked me to talk about moral objections to the, to the gospel and so on. And I think they suggested the term moral apologetics, which I'd never heard before. And so I think maybe, uh, you know, maybe I was the first one to use the term, you know, in terms of describing talks or something like that. But uh, what came out of it was the article you're talking about. And so I'm really happy to see that, 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 that this whole kind of movement, it includes that sort of thing, but it also includes a reinvigoration of the, the so-called moral argument. Um, so, but my thought was, uh, you know, people, uh, God is, if we, th- we think about standard apologetics, we think about pointing to the truth about God. It is true that Jesus rose from the dead. It is true that God exists and so on. And that is necessary for someone to come to, to place their trust in, in Christ. They have, there are certain things that they think have to be true. Um, they actually they have to think, that, well, I guess there is a God and, and so on. Right. Um, but also, if we appeal to the medieval uh, notion of the transcendentals, goodness, truth, and beauty, um, and, and the earlier thinkers... Uh, thought of God as actually the ground of all of that. They, they all, those things all go together. Right. Um, and God is the good, the true and the beautiful and so on. I, my view is that we are attracted, you know, if you look at a beautiful sunset and you go, you, you just have to respond. You say, wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. It just calls forth you know, a, a proper response to the value of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's what happens with those transcendentals, those transcendental values. That's true. We, there's a certain kind of appropriate response to that. That's true. That's what we, that's what we want cognitively is we want to get onto the truth. What we want to get onto morally is the good. We say, yes, that's good. She's good. You know, that, uh, what's happening in Ukraine is bad, but we look at Zelensky and, you know, kind of his, his moral heroism right now. We go, that's good. Yeah. We have to say yes. And the same thing with beauty. That's beautiful. And, and so I think as, as you look at, at different apologetic um, uh, strategies and different things, you, you can, I, I think everything points to God in some way. And so all of those things are sort of channels uh, and, and to recognizing God as the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so arguably, C.S. Lewis was the most balanced among those, uh, but, but also argue, you know, he wrote about all of them. And he, he gives them, you know, famous, probably the most famous moral argument is the first few chapters of mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. 
but but you know it, it, one can make the argument that that the thing that was most compelling to him was beauty yeah and he, and he clearly argued for the truth you know right. and so it, it's amazing how how much that right there has been a challenge to get through to folks when i'm teaching in la and i i just use the example of well going between lmu and pepperdine like i did for over a decade i'd go down pch and oftentimes it was during the sunset so i'd use that example and i would say i've never seen anybody (laughs) or heard of anybody looking at a sunset like that and saying that's ugly yeah (laughs) that no that's not uh, that's ugly you know but i mean but the issue of agreement is kind of a red herring because probably is that we do agree about vast majority of beauty judgments but that's kind of an empirical question about whether we agree right it's not really relevant the question is what do you think (laughs) you really do think it's yeah you really do think it's beautiful i don't think i'm beautiful when i look at it it's not like beauty's in the eye of the mold it's not in my eye yeah the sunset is beautiful yeah yeah and i i owe that to you that the training that we got on that was i think i first really carefully read lewis in your maybe from i think it was in your class actually Mm -hmm. well i always try to have lewis in there somewhere so even if it was a tennis class you might have read lewis (laughs) for me but but anyway so the the you know the the yeah anselm is is particular saint anselm you know, so 12th century uh, Christian thinker is famous for this particularly, but it, there's, there's a strong uh, tradition of this throughout of what's now called perfect being theology, which is that God, God uh, instantiates and exemplifies and is the ground of all perfections. And so he is the good, the true, and the beautiful, and he is the maximal you know, and, and, and the origin and ground of all these things. And so when we're, when we're, you know, we can, it, for some people, beauty is really going to be, if they can just go past, if they can look up the sunbeam, as C.S. Lewis put it, you know, uh, that God's up there. And so in terms of the moral argument, um, I think it's, it's, Bill Craig calls it the most uh, popular and 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 maybe the most compelling argument. I don't know if he says compelling, but I think that's probably uh, you know related to the to the other claim that that people. I know for me that was always the thing that just really resonated. Like God makes sense out of morality. Um, and uh, good way to put it. So there's something something deeply intuitive and. Mm-hmm. But it also, it's more than just abstract, you know. So your intuitions are your friend on this. Common yeah. sense. Yeah. You're, what you're saying is common sense, you can trust it. Yeah. God, yeah. God put it there for a reason. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's evidence. You know, the, the, the moral argument is, it is, it, it is most, you know, basic intuition is, I think, as universal as that sunset example you know but how you you know how you spell it out is is 
can get hugely complicated. But here's, the, here's, the, here's where I learned from Aristotle. To grasp how, something... How do you say his name? What's his name? Harry... <laughs> Stottle. He's, he's not Harry Potter. It's Harry Stottle. Slow um, down. Slow down. Okay. Harry, <laughs> Harry Stottle. Okay. Yes. Related to John Stottle. Yeah. So, but the idea is that the way we the way we grasp these different things is going to is a little bit different. So the way we we philosophers are real, you know, most of us are real have a lot of facility in terms of talking about the true, what is true, and and that's where a lot of the epistemology stuff comes in. Um, and I think Aristotle would say, yeah, it's pretty simple on off right there. You know, you grasp the truth of propositions and so on, but. But what is it? What does it take to grasp something as good? Well, that engages more than simply your cognitive faculties. It also engages your affections and um, your feelings. Your well, emotions. yeah, your 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 feelings, your emotions, but also your desires, hmm. your motivations. All that stuff kind of wrapped up into Hopes. what we can just call the yeah. affections. Yeah what you care about. Uh, and so Aristotle says, you know, for someone to, to, to learn that X is good, uh, one has to, it has to engage their affections in some way. And so this is what a lot of moral formation is what for kids is helping kids, not, not just, you know, Yes. The, the goal is not for kids to have an argument about what's good, <laughs> a philosophical argument that they know this is good. Generosity is good. Truthfulness is good. It's it, it you know it's it's like looking at the at the at the sunset, saying that's beautiful. Oh yes, you 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 feel it. Your it motivates you. It, it it orients you. It calls for a kind of commitment, whereas just recognizing that. Two plus two equals four doesn't. Yeah. And do they go by your authority, your testimony when little kids, when, when they're being, yeah, I think they do to begin with. You don't go trust your intuitions, but they, yeah, they, your, your, the way their intuitions are, are formed includes, there you go, punishment, reward, uh, experiential stuff. So that's why Aristotle says, you know, young people shouldn't take ethics because ethics classes are on basically how to justify kind of moral principles and all that kind of stuff. But if you don't, if you don't actually, if you're a, if you're somebody who is, doesn't give a rip about uh, truth or, or generosity or anything else, you're going to learn to be a, a, a rationalist. You know, you can rationalize uh, immoral behavior uh, but but if you if you have basically the starting points right um you know then wow yeah good then let's let's think about how to how to get a, a bigger grasp of it sort of deal so anyway i there you know of course that's there's a whole world there to be to absolutely be explored sure but i so this is this is where i brought it into moral apologetics and that is that there was a, and a lot of people are saying things like this now. It, 
the the objection to the objections to Christianity of the past were largely that it's false. You know, well, Jesus didn't really lie and rise from the dead, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, it'd be nice if it were true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, Christianity, it's too good to be true. You know, it, it's got a high moral code, but who, you know, who can live according to that? And, you know, I, I had a friend, uh, a student that I was kind of sharing with at Oxford, and he said, I really like the, the morals of Christianity. I, I just can't, I, you know, I don't buy the metaphysics. Uh, all the, you know, all the truth claims, mm-hmm. but it, I'm attracted to the moral vision of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think those days are gone now. The, mm-hmm. the objection, the primary objections to Christianity now are moral, at least here in the West, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's too bad to be true. And Christians are, you know, intolerant, narrow-minded, bigoted, racist, etc. Just name your objection. Uh, and, you know, so how do we understand that? So right. my, my view is that giving a moral argument as simply a philosophical argument, as good as, as that is, and as important as that is, it's, it's not going to convince somebody that God is good unless they're already have some, you know, this, the, the soil has been softened or something sufficiently that they're at least open to that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's if, not, if that's not the work of philosophy, is it? No, no, okay. not strictly speaking. No, there's a place for but, it, but I think there is a place for us to take that in, to recognize it in terms of persuasion. Yes. So what, what's going to make these truth claims be- believable? Well, that's going to be more than just showing that they're true. In, mm-hmm. You know, it depends on the truth claim. Yes. So, so I, I give the example in, in, this, in this paper of this is a true story. This, this precedes you, Lucas, in, 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 uh, uh, at Denver Seminary. <laughs> you might have been around. Were you around when the American Atheists had their national convention in Denver? I think I recall hearing about it, but yeah. I don't know. I think I might have been in the Navy still. Yeah. So it, it, they had their national convention over Easter weekend. And uh, a group of us, I mean, I, I was friends with the president of the American Atheists in Colorado. And uh, I knew what they were going to do, you know. And, and, and so, um, you know, there's a lot of stories we could tell. But the they had a, par- a parade through downtown Denver and uh, the, the atheists, and I knew they were going to do this because one of the leaders had a sign shop. They were carrying picket signs with signs like Mary should have had an abortion, get the church out of my crotch, uh, you know, and so this, other this sensitive was- nuanced sorts of, so this expression. was not a pro Ronald Reagan uh, no, no, event. No. Okay. I'm, I'm taking notes. Yeah. Okay. Good. And I like how you're taking notes with your yellow marker there, Lucas. That's I, a, it's a mechanical pencil. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I love mechanical pencils. The, the only, the only weirder people 
then the atheists marching in this thing uh, were the Christians on the side. <laughs> the only weirder people? Yeah. I mean, it was just brutal. There was a group of guys that were in, 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 kind of on the curb, mm -hmm. on their knees, uh, praying loudly in tongues and, and kind of wafting the tongues over onto the atheists as they walked by. But the, but the real image that is seared into my memory, and not much is seared into my memory anymore, uh, <laughs> is the guy with a, a big hard hat and a mechanical uh, bullhorn on, mounted on it with a microphone. Uh, so it was one of these, you know, battery operated megaphone things. Mm -hmm. And as the, as the atheists walked by, this guy's screaming into the microphone, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And, you know, I expected, I expected the atheists to fall on their knees in faith and repentance. Oh, oh, I get it now. <laughs> Uh, nope, didn't happen. Well, these, you know, the propositions this guy was asserting were certainly true and important for them to know, but somehow they didn't get the point. Yeah, because of the way he said it, and and that's sure. a that's a an example of how, uh, you know, uh, yeah, sure. There's a difference between the truth of something and the believability yes. of it, and being able to take it in. I think a lot of people in ministry would have a, would have had a in an earlier generation, kind of a more anti-intellectual anti generation. Although, I think there's anti-intellectualism all over the place still. Yeah. But um, in all generations, you know, they they might say, "Well, yeah, but you could sit down at a typewriter and write out a moral argument. That's not going to convince him either. He's not going to fall on his knees either. So, what does exactly true? Work? True. You know. So, yeah. So no, but a, that yeah. So that's what's the a, alternative, a, you know. That's an analogy to illustrate, yeah, that there's more going on. Yes, absolutely. And so that's what I would say about the moral, the typed out moral argument, mm -hmm. is that I think a typed out argument for the resurrection can actually be compelling, and it has, and it certainly it has. has. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think a, a typed out moral argument can be compelling too, but it, it does require attention to the soil, so to speak. I think Aristotle's right that there. So, so let's just say that yeah. there's a, 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 a woman whose dad is a Baptist preacher and he abused her her whole life. And then you, you say, well, you know, I've got this moral argument uh, that shows that, you know, God is good and he's the explanation for all the goodness in the world. I can imagine her saying it just can't be true. Yeah. You know, she might not even be interested in reading it. Yeah. No, I, I don't think she probably would be interested in reading it. And, an and the reason span, is not because yeah. she knows it's false is because she knows she thinks it couldn't be true. Yeah. And her, maybe her nervous system's not in, it's outside of her window of tolerance and she's, she's in fight or flight or she's that you know, very well could be the case shut yeah. down or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But even if she's kind of over that, you know, mm -hmm. somehow has worked through all that, she probably still is not open to somebody giving an argument any more than you and I would be open to somebody 
hey, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the Flat Earth Society and we're having a meeting tonight and, you know, and, and veil. we might want to go just to kind of mock or something, but it's right. like, I got better things to do with my time. <laughs> and yeah. Well, you, and, you and know, so, the, oh, go ahead. Are you going further, Dave? Because I, I, there was cancel flat earth meeting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm supposed to have this on mute. Sorry. Uh. Well, go ahead, Curtis. I can. Well, what I was going to, what I, you know, Lucas had said a moment ago. So what's the alternative, right? And, and the, 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 the takeaway that I got from reading that is that the alternative is essentially living yes. in such a way that makes those people, you, you know, it's not, it's as endearing as it may be to be screaming in a microphone. <laughs> there may be a better way to live and approach people so that they can have hope and start to latch on to those pieces that you're talking about. Um, to, to, yeah. That could be yeah. another alternative. Yeah. So I think, to kind of tie it together, uh, you know, there has to be, you know, again, Aristotle's point is that there has to be this kind of a proper sort of experience yes, associated with coming to grasp, you know, certain concepts and so on. And there was a time when the, when Christians were thought to be good. And so you could give an argument, you could even give a moral argument. Oh yeah, that makes sense. But if, if somebody, now, and, and I'm sure there are some people who, for whom that's still the case, but you know, it's, not a, it's not a given anymore. Um, and, and so, and, and, you know, even besides people like the, the young woman I mentioned, um, so it, there, there's a need for argument, but of a different kind, an analogous sort of making a moral argument as being good yes, um, and, and helping, you know, so as, as we, as we love people and do that sort of thing, that softens the soil to the possibility that, that, that this could be true. Mm-hmm. So the sociologists of knowledge call, call this plausibility. Um, you know, and if you, it, a real simple way to think about it is plausibility is the question, could it be true? And I, I say credibility is the question, is it true? And, and so, you know, we just have to face the fact that in doing apologetics or whatever, that we've got both going on. And if, if, if there's a plausibility problem, yes, then that's just going to filter out all of our credibility stuff. So I, I, I'm excited that, that there's, you know, this, this moral apologetics movement is, and it really is does seem to be a movement. It's going on, but I think it really is important that w- that it includes a real emphasis f- for people on, you know, if you if you think about just one more quick little thing that's related, but the our the passage that we all appeal to for apologetics, First Peter three fifteen. You know, but set apart Christ as, as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Wait a minute. And, and he says, but with gentleness and respect, if anybody asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, well, how many times did people do that? Well, then you look in the context there, it's all about suffering. 
in, in, in doing it, hopefully. So that's a kind of, you know, plausibility thing is the context, the soil, yeah. the precursor, as you said. Very Curtis. good point. Very good point. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot there, there, and there's, it reminds me of a story you told me, I believe it was you that told me this story of a CU Boulder professor, atheist specialized in Nietzsche. And uh, I'm going to tee this up and, and hopefully I don't fall flat on my face here. Hopefully it was you that told me this, but I think it was the context was whether his students, since the Bible had stopped being read in public schools, sometimes Sometime in the 60s, the Supreme Court put an end to that, wrongfully, in my opinion, but uh, in my correct opinion. But um, he, he had mentioned that his students at Boulder don't understand Nietzsche as well as the previous students. I think he had been there for 40 years at this point. And they were biblically illiterate was the issue. Was that you that told me that yes. story? Yeah. Can you can you share that anecdote? Yeah. yeah, and that's basically correct. So this guy was a, you know, what he was, was his a name. Do you this is a, he was a Nietzschean. What was his name? Do you remember? Rogers, Robert Rogers. Hmm. The first class I took at CU as a grad student, and he was he was very anti-Christian. Um, and um, but you know, there were probably 30 of us in the class. Uh, it, it quickly became basically uh, Rogers and Horner class because <laughs> he would, he would do all this Nietzsche stuff and, and there are all these biblical allusions yes. and he'd kind of with a little wry grin on his face, he'd, he'd, he'd make some sort of joke about that. I'm the only guy getting it. Uh, <laughs> so pretty yeah, soon he's just, he's yeah, just fill, looking at me you know fill that in Nietzsche is not a Christian he's a modern philosopher contemporary yeah. depending on how you divide it 1900 and he I, I think most people would say he's modern philosopher and toward the end of the modern era these terms are weird but yeah so he's he's a he he's not a Christian yeah in fact and, he's in he's 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 definitely not a Christian. He hated but, Christianity. But one more step, though, he is steeped yes. in the Christian tradition. So he just takes it for granted that he will make an echo or an allusion yeah. to, to something. I'm thinking of uh, Professor Hayes, uh, Echoes of Scripture in the Letters of Paul, 1980s. He wrote, Richard Hayes wrote this book, and then uh -huh. it's been taken. But Echoes and Allusions where yes. you can just very, you could just mention just a teeny little thing. And, and it, for the biblically illiterate or biblically literate, it will bring up the whole context and the whole passage. And yeah. yeah. To, to touch on our earlier conversation, as we go forward, this is a beautiful irony. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> finish yeah. the, finish the anecdote. In fact, in fact I, yeah. Finish the anecdote. While, while I was Robert's right question. after I took this class, <clears throat> I was asked to speak at a Christian writers conference in Colorado on biblical illiteracy. And, and I use this as kind of my, my central, you know, um, yeah, it's very powerful. Thing. It stuck with me this whole time because, because he, 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 so he would, 
you um, were the only one in the class getting the allusions yeah, to oh, the yeah. Bible. Yeah. Okay. So you yeah. were the only so, one understanding what Nietzsche was actually exactly. saying. Yeah. And, there, and of course, there's a whole lot we can say about this. It, this is what E.D. Hirsch called cultural literacy. He yes, said, you can, yeah. you can learn uh, certain vocabulary. You can do, you know, phonetics and all that kind of stuff. But if you don't know the cultural background, you're going to miss a lot. Yeah. So I, I, the, the, the illustration I always used was uh, in uh, Parent Trap. You know, my, my girls watched Parent Trap. I don't know if you guys, oh, yeah. Yeah, but the original anyway, there's, one? Yes. there's these two girls, yes. you know, that, that are, uh, that are lookalikes, you know, and, and they, so they switch places. And at one point, one of the girls is saying to the other on the phone, dad is going to, oh, that's right. They're twins, right? One's raised yeah. by the mother. One's raised by the father. Right. Uh, on the phone, dad's, dad's, he's going to marry this terrible woman. Right. She's a yeah. real, she's a real Cruella de Vil. Uh-huh. Yeah. The other one goes, oh no, you know. Well, good idea. Yeah, good. What good example. You know, what does yeah. that mean? Everybody who's watching it knows exactly what it means. Right. Because but, of because of the 101, 101 Dalmatians. Dalmatians. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cultural literacy. If you don't know that, you have no idea. You could you could reason, you know, you could recognize the syllables and the letters and you could say it properly. You don't have yeah. no you have no idea what's going on. So, and that's kind of the way it is reading Nietzsche. Uh, if you're not, you don't have some degree of biblical literacy because it's just steeped in this stuff, um, yeah. you know, shepherd and, you know, the just yes. all kinds of stuff. And so that's what was going on. And so at one point, <laughs> this guy said to me, I just, you know, I find the, the level of biblical illiteracy in our culture appalling. <laughs> the atheist says the atheist <laughs> yeah and one amen. other interesting amen brother thing, amen an, another little thing related to them the uh aesthetic pointers to god is that one time there there was a guy that was another grad student in the program who was a village atheist you know he was just super anti-christian he was you know it was bertrand russell sort of guy and i somehow he came into conversation and, and Rogers said, yeah, he's a Bertrand Russell atheist. He said, I can't, I can't understand Bertrand Russell atheists. He said, I, I hear box B minor mass. And I, I cannot simply dismiss God like that. Mm. <laughs> Another one of those really memorable wow. deals. I would and, love to take his class. Yeah. Did, was he intimidating? Uh, not too bad. Again, I was a little older. Yeah. Um, and in fact, when I left, you worked uh, out. Actually, he, he's the one that kept me from being accepted as a doctoral student there in the first place because I had gone to Denver Seminary. Yeah. Um, but now, when I left to go was, to Oxford, that was, that was pretty normal, right? That would be pretty yeah. normal behavior for, yeah, for the, these people. Well, especially this guy, he, he had a history of that. And, uh, and so he, when I left to go to Oxford, he, he stopped me and he said, you know, Oxford's uh, gain is our loss. So, oh, that's, it, that's interesting. You know, 
So only the biblically so, uh, illiterate are allowed to go to, to Boulder. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he um, had an agenda. To, you to know me. too much Bible. <laughs> that's right. Can I ask about the end end point to this? I hate I hate to do it because I I take it we're are no, we you, sort of you, live? We go or? by we go by your no we're not live. Okay, so yeah, we're going. Well, if you want to go by my bladder, um, <laughs> hold on is, a second. Part of the vision that we have for these things is that we're looking long-term and it's hard for people to, it's ironically hard for researchers to think of long-term how, how things will be remembered or if they will be remembered. And there are so many things that I've been curious of in the library that were just never covered. Mm -hmm. And so that stuff is just lost. So for example, one of the things I'd like to ask you before we leave is who was your doctoral advisor at Oxford for your PhD? Um, little things like that, that just people don't think is important at the time, but later it's tremendously helpful for people trying to just figure out what happened and who went where and what the dates were. You'd be surprised how many people don't even mention the dates. Well, and even and, who thinks what? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And names, specific names, being clear about terms just helps researchers later. I, I think that YouTube will be a like an archive later. I, I think that it will be preserved for future generations and it might be 100 years from now. You have no idea what yeah. what your impact will be. And we we're obsessed with who's going to watch this next week. I'm not saying you, but I'm just saying, you know, who's going to, you know, it, that's that's very uh, it's not really exactly totally exactly on our goal or our goal is to <laughs> is to have i'm not saying it's you i'm just saying but yeah. our goal is to have something valuable for a long time and, and a lot of that has to do with the yeah. kind of person you were and you're so likable dave you're so likable your people will want to read your book because you're likable and, you ha- and, and the backstory behind it is so valuable. Who was your doctoral advisor at Oxford? Well, I had two. I started with Anthony Kenny, um, who is, you know, really a huge figure in the British uh, yeah. intellectual landscape. He was the president of the British, of the, uh, British Academy while I was there, which is the supreme sort of body of academics. Yeah. Uh, and he was also the, the warden of wards, the Rhodes Fellowship, so Rhodes Scholars. And uh, so I got to be sort of in that circle a little bit. I had a, also had a good friend that I was sort of mentoring who was a Rhodes Scholar. But when, when Bill Clinton came uh, to Oxford to, to uh, receive an honorary degree, um, we had a, a uh, all the Americans, we had a special reception I- I- at the Rhodes house. Um, so got to, you know, shake hands with, with Bill and so on. But anyway, so Kenny was just, just a remarkable, remarkable person. Um, a really good philosopher, but who had written on everything from, and he trans he'd written on 
John Wycliffe translated a bunch of his stuff. Kenny was an agnostic, former priest. Um, he'd, he'd written on Descartes, Leibniz, a lot on Aquinas. That's how I ended up with yeah. him. Uh, I have his also a lot on Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's got this great series of medieval philosophy yeah. or yeah. Yeah, of of actually a history of Western philosophy. Yes, yeah. um, he's I don't know how many books he's written, probably a hundred. Uh, but he's even written on the political politics in Ireland and on mountain climbing. Um, <clears throat> dear person. Um, was not hostile to you and your take on no he uh, wrote on he, aquinas and aquinas yeah i was doing aristotle. Uh, yeah. yeah aristotle and aquinas and he was he, he was sympathetic although he had very uh strong views on everything and um so we we did not see eye to eye on a on a bunch of things which is a little bit of a struggle but <clears throat> excuse me he uh he was great. But then at age 65, you have to retire from Oxford. It's forced uh, retirement. I can't remember what the becoming redundant. And so <clears throat> you become a pensioner. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. So um, and actually when I, he, he was my uh, supervisor for my MPhil, my master's degree thesis. <clears throat> and when we moved to, to the DPhil status, he said, I'm going to probably have to retire here before it's done. So let's, I'll co, I'll do it with someone else. So Roger Crisp was the other one. And Roger Crisp was, was a y- much younger. He's an Aristotle scholar. Uh, he's also a uh, moral philosophy in general. Uh, he's now written a, a major work on Sidgwick. Um, he's a trans, he's a, he did the translation of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics for Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Dear guy. Sidgwick, a Sidgwick was a major ethicist, right? Yeah. So he, so Sidgwick was a Cambridge guy in the turn of the 20th century. Major, um, utilitarian and very influential. He, he wrote this dense, turgid prose, but he was one of these, these sort of, <clears throat> he, he would think through these thought experiments and these, these um, he, was, he was willing to take the argument wherever it led, however implausible it might sound. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> no problem. And uh, so, but he influenced two other utilitarians who are much more influential today. Uh, one is Peter Singer, mm-hmm. who says uh, that, that Sidgwick's book, uh, Methods of Ethics, uh, is, is the greatest uh, book ever written on ethics. Uh, also, uh, J.C.C. Smart, who was also an atheist yeah. utilitarian who actually uh, had a debate in print back and forth to debate in print with C.S. Lewis on utilitarianism. I did not know that. Yeah. And okay. he, uh, he also says that Sidgwick's book is the greatest ever written. 
Um, and then the, the third one um, is uh, Derek Parfit. Parfit's yeah. not quite as known, you know, to people uh, as, as singer, but Parfit was there at Oxford when I was there and he was one of my teachers. So I, I actually studied with Parfit uh, for one term. Okay. And uh, he, he, he was a, a wonderful person, hmm. but he was, he, he kind of channeled Sidgwick. Okay. He's the master of crazy thought experiments. Yes. I remember the mind, the brain yeah. one, the split yeah. brain. Yeah. So he's, yeah, he, he, he's, he's quite a piece of work. Um, uh, so anyway, that's Sidgwick is, is this influential guy on those people. And, and so Roger Crisp, uh, you know, in recent years, that's one of the big projects he's done is to kind of, kind of bring Sidgwick in. Um, but he's written on everything under the sun, including Aristotle. So he, he didn't know much about Aquinas. Kenny knew a ton about Aquinas. He, yeah. uh, Kenny was one of the, there, there's been a, there was a, a kind of a revival of interest in Aquinas uh, in beginning in the 1960s. And it was, Kenny was right at the heart of that. Um, but yeah. also Norman Kretzman from, from Cornell. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they, because, you know, Aquinas had been written off for many years as, well, he's just that ca Catholic guy yeah. that all the Catholic people have to read Five and ways. all this kind of stuff. And, you know, uh, uh, Bertrand Russell and his history of Western philosophy said, you know, he wasn't a real, Aquinas was not a real philosopher. He already knew the answer to the question. So, um, you know, trying to figure out arguments just to, to substantiate uh, something, the, the answer to which you already know, that's not real philosophy. And so Aqu uh, Aquinas had kind of been poisoned. Mm -hmm. Well, in the, in the uh, early 60s, especially I think with Vatican II and different things, Aquinas kind of got left behind by the Catholic Church and other people began to discover him. And enter, enter Anthony Kenny, uh, mid-60s. He, he was one of the first DPhils awarded at Oxford, I think. And uh, he was a student of Elizabeth Anscombe. Uh, he, was, he was just, he was in the melting pot of all this amazing stuff. And he, as an agnostic, you know, starts working to bring Aquinas back into the conversation. And so he has this great line about Bertrand Russell and uh, Russell's dismissal of Aquinas. He says, you know, again, just to repeat, he, Russell said, if you know the answer to the, the question, you know, that's not real philosophy. Right. You're supposed to just be searching and then trying, trying to find an answer. <clears throat> well, Bertrand Russell's first book, was written with Alfred North Whitehead. It was called Principia Mathematica. And this was back in the early part of the 20th century. And <clears throat> so, <clears throat> sorry, Kenny says, Russell's dismissal of Aquinas comes oddly from someone who uh, in 1903 or whenever it was written, um, spent 
500 some odd dense pages arguing that two plus two equals four, <laughs> the answer to which he had known his whole life. <laughs> Wonderful. Isn't it amazing that ba these basic things that, that you can put people point out? That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. Well, now you mentioned Richard Swinburne and we know Richard Swinburne a little bit because he came out to teach our philosophy of religion class with Doug Guyvett back in 2004. Curtis and I were both in that class, turns oh. out. Um, I guess we were both in, we were both in your uh, medieval and ancient ethics class, right, Curtis? Did you mention that you were in I believe so, yeah. Okay. I, know, well, I, I honestly don't remember if it was the it, same section. It might well, not be well, the same semester. Or okay, well, dishonestly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, dishonestly. Um, uh, <laughs> Trent, we had Trent Doherty on. He's a, an epistemologist, and he, was, he, he kept saying truthfully, and I eventually just said, lie to us. <laughs> anyway, he stopped, and he was like, I threw him or, off. You know, a lot of people will often say, now I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Well, finally. <laughs> what were you? What were you <laughs> been waiting for it. So wait, the, the context was not honesty before. So how can I interpret that's right, that's the right. fact okay. that you said you're just going to be honest? With yeah. Are you are you honestly telling me that? Or are you? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Richard Swinburne, what was his role? What was his role? Yeah. Okay. So, well, I started again. I, I went over there to do moral arguments. So I was going to do a defill in philosophical theology, which was Swinburne's baby. It's a kind of hybrid thing with the philosophy. They call it a faculty, philosophy faculty, and the theology faculty. And uh, so, but, and so I started, and I did an MPhil in philosophical theology. But as I progressed, um, I realized, you know, I, I actually want to just work on the ethics stuff, not so much. The, the, the philosophy of religion stuff. Um, and so, um, but I did do that. So I, my, my thesis I did was, had to have some of that in it, but it was, it was more basically Aristotle Aquinas stuff. And, I, and, and so Swinburne was my supervisor for my MPhil um, in general. Okay. We were part of the same college. So he, we had this uh, society <laughs> at Oriel College called the, the Joseph Butler Society. And Joseph Butler was an alumnus of our college. Uh, he was an Anglican bishop. Uh, I can't remember when, back in the, I think, 1700s. Yeah. And he, he, he wrote a lot on ethics. He wrote on uh, philosophy of religion stuff. He was great. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we had the society at Swinburne was the president of it and I was the secretary. <laughs> and so we would bring speakers in and put on events and stuff. So I, even when I stopped working with him as my supervisor, we continued to Just work on those things together. Um, and then he, so I, I mentioned it, the, the Oxford system is tutorials. So I had a term of philosophy of religion with Swinburne. So I'd write papers for him and he would eviscerate them and, and, and so on. And, and then 
the next term, I, I, I studied with Keith Ward, who, you know, was a, um, a he, he held a chair, Swingern held a chair in, in uh, philosophy of religion. He was, was, it a, was it a heavy professor. chair? Huh? Was it a heavy chair? Well, how, you know, I never personally he? tried to tried to lift it, but yeah. okay. So that's called uh, a chair. That's like a yeah. It's you know, it's what we call it. We call a chair of this and that. Yeah, yeah. It's a, like an endowed uh, professor. Yeah. yeah. If you're called professor at Oxford, at least in those days, big you're deal. Professor, that was a special deal. Yeah. It, here we say you know, we might use the word professor more generically, somebody yes. who teaches, uh, but there that only a few people were professors. So Swinburne yes. was, and then Ward was a, was the Regis professor of divinity. Um, and, but he was a Kant scholar. Uh, and I, I studied Kant with him. Uh, I studied uh, Aquinas with Brian Davis, and we would we would look at his name and we would think it's Davies, but he's Welsh. They pronounce it Davis, uh, and he's a major Aquinas scholar. And that's it. Actually, was when I was working with him, I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. This when I changed my mind. But then I had the amazing privilege of doing ethics with Bernard Williams, mm. and he held the chair in moral philosophy. Oh wow. And we yeah, became pretty good. We became pretty good friends, actually. Um, oh. We spent quite a bit of time together. And um, he's an atheist. Yes. Uh, essentially a Nietzschean. Mm -hmm. He told me Nietzsche, he's learned more from Nietzsche than anybody else. Uh, but then it, somewhere in that first year uh, is when I came up with the idea of, of kind of switching out of doing more philosophy of religion to, to, to more focus on Aristotle and Aquinas. And he said, that's a great idea. Swinburne said, that's a great idea. Now we have to figure out who will supervise it. And so he approached Anthony Kenney and he, he hadn't had supervisees for a long time, but he agreed to do it, which was cool. incredible. Um, and so then once I'd finished the MPhil, if you, if you're successful enough with an MPhil, they'll allow you to just continue on for a defill and thankfully i was and so then that's when i uh it became kenny and crisp and then eventually kenny had to kind of back out okay but swinburne was you know he he was a major figure there he he was he was you know he had planning over at that time the most prominent christian philosophers i think in the world uh, Did you and, have to go into his office for his, for the tutorial? Yes. And tell us about the office. Did it have a fireplace? <laughs> it had a fireplace, <laughs> and <laughs> it was it was a it was a great experience. Yeah, it was it was like. Did it look like a hobbit lived there? That's really what we're trying to get. Yeah, at. that's what you're trying to get at. Yeah, it. Yeah, all those meetings with those guys, like when I came over and I was visiting, you know, the first time. Uh, when I met with, when we stayed with Bill Craig, uh, you know, every one of these, they were, they were all a little bit different from each other, but they're all just classic. Like the guy in Cambridge, and I can't think of his name. He was the most classic. He had this big expansive paneled room, you know, with all these 
bookcases. They had the fire was going. They typically would have an appointment at 4 p.m. And it was dark at that time. And tea would be served. And this guy, the fire's going. The, the cat is on his lap. <laughs> and uh, it was just, <laughs> just like, oh, yes. <laughs> did, uh, did Swinburne use his fireplace? You know, I can't remember if he ever did. I, I, I think coal? he may not have. He, he was. Did they burn coal or was it wood? Um, good question. It was small, but, right? It's a small yeah, fireplace. It's not like a large. Not like a huge thing. Like, you know, everything in America is huge. It's practical. It, it's it's practical. 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 It wasn't tiny, but it was modest, I guess okay. is a good way to say it. Uh, I think it was wood. I don't think it was coal. Uh, and it, I, I doubt that it was gas, but it, it might've been, uh, in fact, yeah, it might well have been because, you know, they, uh, they, they've been on, you know, they've used that sort of thing for heat much longer than America. You know, we, for us, it's decorative. Um, they, they were serious about it. So it was, it was probably gas. Yeah, I for for our listeners, I I'm just so struck as you're as you're dropping these names like, oh, yeah, there's this guy and, you know, Kenny and I and Swinburne and and Russell or, or I mean, a, a Bernard Williams. And I mean, these are the giants. People need to understand these are all I think every name you listed are giants of influence in their fields in in the in this in this last century. And, and you know. They're the ones that are going to be written about, about yeah. all these ideas. And, and you had the privilege of studying. Them. Well, they, they oh. are the ones that are written about. And now it's the next generation, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and you're carrying said, that forward. <clears throat> well, I don't know if I am, but <laughs> my students are. Yeah. And I appreciate that. It, it's, it's, uh, you know, Kenny was not, he wasn't such a household name among people I knew. But I had a he poster was, of him uh, in my as a high school student uh, next to the Kiss poster and the Van Halen yeah. <laughs> poster. But you know, it's funny. Bill Alston, who was who was a you know one of the leading American guys, he came to to Boulder one time, and Gary Deweese and I had breakfast with him, and and so I told him that I was working with Kenny, and he he just kind of sat up and he said. The last time he was in Oxford, he said, I went by Blackwell's bookstore and in the, in the window, it says the latest from Anthony Kenny. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's like in excess back then or you yeah, know, Def yeah. Leopard. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> so I'll tell you a couple quick Kenny stories. <clears throat> Excuse me. He, uh, <clears throat> I was just always surprised by the amazing things that, you know, the connections he had. So Elizabeth Anscombe, that name's come up, you know, she was this, she was a major figure. It, you and, never met her, did you? I never met her. Um, I met her friend who their names go all together a lot at Philip Foot. She was, I was in a seminar with her. And I also saw I saw Iris Murdoch on the street. Uh, she had she had dementia 
and she would kind of disappear and and then they had to kind of and and I I actually saw her on this I, you know I was there when she was I think sort of lost on the street one time so the the you know those three are often mentioned together as in fact there's a new book out uh, I I just saw being reviewed about the three about three of them or four of them mm-hmm. can't remember who the other one would be but Anscombe was a piece of work from all I've heard. And she famously, she, she was a convert to, to uh, Catholic Christianity uh, from, as an from, undergrad, as an undergrad. Pardon from me? Islam? For what, from no, I, I don't know. Maybe from atheism or just whatever. But I think as an undergrad at Oxford, uh, she converted and she had very strong views and um, so she, uh, uh, it, it was teaching at Oxford. I mean, at that time, there weren't a lot of women, you know, uh, as students or teachers. Right, but, right. But yeah. So these, these three were, yeah. were powerhouses. Yeah. And uh, so she, she famously debated C.S. Lewis at the Socratic uh, Club. Uh, I can't remember which year it was, but he had written in, in his book on miracles. He had written a, a, a sort of argument that was it's very similar to what Plantinga argues, which is that basically, if evolution is true, we don't have, we you know, we have no reason to trust our cognitive faculties to be getting onto the truth. Um, you know, they're selected for, you know, that was uh, her argument. It, it, or that was Lewis's argument. It was Lewis's argument. Okay. You know, that, he, and, and he, he brings it up in a lot of different places. She thought it was fallacious. So she came and she presented this paper at, at this, at the Socratic club and Lewis was the leader of it. And people, you know, there's lots of mythology about it. Like he, that's when he gave up doing apologetics and just went into writing, you know, fantasy and all. I'd heard, I'd heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but I've read her account of it. Uh, her papers are published by the university of Minnesota. Her account is, yeah, it was no big deal. I, I pointed out a problem and he changed it in his, his next edition. And we went out to dinner together, you know, a couple of weeks later, it was no big deal. Uh, there's a whole lot more I could say about all that, but in any case, Anscombe, then she wrote this paper in 1958 called modern moral philosophy, Yeah, in which she, she coined the term consequentialism in that paper. And it, she was a, and, and that many people say that was the beginning of the revival of virtue ethics mm. and in, in, analytic philosophy mm-hmm. and but she was a she was a dev, she was a student of and very close friend and collaborator with and translator of Wittgenstein Ludwig Wittgenstein who was over at Cambridge and her st- writing style is kind of Wittgensteinian which is to say hard to read unintelligible yeah <laughs> um, but that's, then un- when, that's unfortunate yeah but then when Wittgenstein died um, she was awarded his chair at Cambridge. So she's a major figure. Yep. And uh, 
So Kenny was a student of Anscombe. We just had Alex Plato on last week, and he wrote his dissertation. He's a he's a Biola grad. He might yeah. have had your class. He, yeah. he wrote his dissertation on Anscombe, and we oh. went on for about three hours. And he 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 didn't. We barely scratched the surface, but yeah, we so people who yeah. are paying attention will have heard that name before. Yeah. Okay. So she. Um, so, so, so things would come up in my, uh, my times with, with Kenny. Um, like I would, I would, I would give a kind of standard interpretation of her 1958 paper. And he would say things, well, Elizabeth, you know, <laughs> he would push back and say, but she was so, she was so committed to natural law and stuff. I don't know how she could, you know, how, how it would be appropriate to interpret her that way. Kind of tells them, well, you know, wow. Okay. And, and in fact, um, she, she said once in an interview, I don't think there's a thought I've ever had, uh, that didn't come from Wittgenstein. It wasn't originally from Wittgenstein. And Kenny said in an interview, I'm not sure there's a, th a thought I've ever had that didn't originally come from Elizabeth. Mm. Wow. Now, you know, both of them being excessively generous, I'm sure, to their to their teacher. But uh, yeah. But anyway, you know, so it was really wonderful for me to 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 be able to, uh, you know, kind of get in on some of that. And then another thing, interesting thing that happened was um, one time he was he was getting getting ready to give a presentation on what? Well, on. Tyndale and the or on, on the Bible and the translation English translation of the Bible mm -hmm. I said why he said well you know it's Tyndale's 500th anniversary and and because I was one of the translators on the New Jerusalem Bible um, you know I've been asked to give a, a, a paper so related to that one time I was walking through Oxford when I was over there in the summers I would come up I'd go over there in the summers and teach and meet with, with him. And when I, when I was back in Boulder and, uh, during the year. And so I ran into Gene Porter, who is a, um, yeah. moral theologian at Notre Dame that I had gotten to know a bit yep. and her husband, <clears throat> um, uh, blanking on his name, he, but he's a, he's an older British old Testament guy. Do you know his social security number? I could look it up really quick. Yeah, uh, it's it's escaping me, but I do have the last four digits. There you, last four is all I need. Yeah, um, but I'm 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 blanking on his name right now. But anyway, he I I'd not met him, and so I met him, and he's and he said, you know what he did? I said, well, tomorrow I'm meeting with Anthony. Oh, Tony. <laughs> he said yes we worked together on the jerusalem the new the jerusalem bible i guess that was the first time i had heard that i said what else has he done you know so, so i met with him and uh he said yeah we worked together on job or, or we we worked together on you know something yeah i think he meant i, job. I guess it was Job. i and think so, he meant job job oh yeah 
I don't know why is people have such a hard time. Yeah, I know. I've been looking for a job for, for a long time there, but I'm I think it's out. just before Psalms. It's a, it's a part-time job. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, the next day I'm meeting with, with, with uh, Kenny. He says, oh, yes, yes, we, I said, I didn't know you. So you, you translated some Old Testament for the, I didn't know you were a Hebrew scholar. He said, well, I do know Hebrew, but no, the role, the, 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 uh, (laughs) the Jerusalem Bible was a, was originally a French Bible. And then they wanted to make it into English. So they, they were concerned to translate it well from French and go to the original languages. Mm. So he said, I was, a, I was translating from French. And, but you know what? Another interesting, interesting little tidbit is, you know, who was the principal translator for the Jerusalem Bible for Job, also known as Job? A guy named J.R.R. Tolkien. Wow. And uh, so Kenny must have worked with him on that as well. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so here's a quick, here's a quick update on, or, you know, as long as we're, I'm telling Anscombe stories. So, and and this is, I think what you're, you, part of it's what you're alluding to, you alluded to earlier, uh, Curtis, that, um, so back in about 19, I don't know, 89 or 90, uh, I, I was, I was part of a pro-life conference thing on talk. It was concerned euthanasia. It was at Stanford and they had a speaker there who had never been to one of these things before. Uh, and I'm blanking on his name, John, somebody. And he, um, he was a, he was a, he was the president of the Thoreau Society and a philosopher at the University of Minnesota and an atheist, hmm. but he was pro-life. And I just remember some, some, you know, lesser light guy got up and he said something about Plato something. <laughs> and then John gets <laughs> up and he says, well, actually what he said was, you know, I thought, cool. So I, I was, this is when I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to pursue all this, you know, and, I said, so I went up to him. I, this was probably like 88 or something. And I'm at, I'm at C, University of Colorado and I'm pursuing this. But again, I hardly know anybody. <clears throat> I said, could we have breakfast? So we had breakfast. And it turns out, he said, well, yeah, I really think highly of planning. Uh, um, but you know who I think is the greatest Christian philosopher today is Elizabeth Anscombe. And her husband, Peter Geach, who's also a fine Christian philosopher. And he said, I'm actually related to them. My daughter is married to their son or vice versa. And they're great people. Hmm. Okay, wow. So I kept up with him. And and I actually, I was involved in a nonviolent civil uh, disobedience uh, thing at an abortion clinic. Uh, and was arrested. And um, this is not too long before I went over to Oxford. And, and I remember being on in a phone call with this guy. Mm-hmm. And I, I told him that. And he said, I wish I had the 
courage to do that. And he said, you know, Elizabeth Anscombe does that. In fact, she was just arrested at a, an abortion clinic in London recently. And they, and she was, she's 80 some years old and she was kind of manhandled and thrown into a paddy wagon. And I'm concerned for, for her. And I'm, you know, holy cow, really? So I get over to Oxford a couple of years into it. I go to a, I go to a seminar thing, a special lecture by Ronald Dworkin. And here in the, the audience is Bernard Williams and John Finnis, who is like the premier natural law guy. And he was the, he, he held the chair, the professorship in, in law uh, at Oxford. Neil and, Gorsuch and did his DPhil under him now. He He's trained on the Supreme Neil Court. Gorsuch, yeah. yeah. But he also he also trained uh, not for not a DPhil, but uh, well, yeah, maybe. I know I know they're good friends is uh, Robert George at Princeton. Mm. Um, yeah, that's so, correct. And I, I, I and I, and I'm, and, and fitness helped me with one of my chapters. So I had one appointment with him, yeah. but, but this is before that. So I, I, I introduced myself to him. Oh, you're John Finnis. I said, um, I'm, I'm, I just wanted you to know I'm real involved in pro-life stuff in the United States. And I understand. <laughs> so one of those conversations, you just can't, you just, <laughs> you know, so your, memorable. Your, I said, your first reform is about what you understand. Yeah, I understand that Elizabeth Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot, Elizabeth Anscombe was arrested, uh, you know, at an abortion clinic recently. With you know, I've done a little bit of that. I understand that she was arrested. You know, he says, "Yes, I'm her attorney." <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, okay, the world is too gray. Okay? I love that story. And, and, I, and I would be, I would have been happy if that was the end of the story, but you guys don't know there, there, Curtis, there's still more to this. It gets better. So I can, you know, move back and, uh, and Elizabeth uh, Anscombe eventually dies. And, and there's a, there's a, uh, an obituary in First Things Journal written by John. Venice. And he, he honors her Christian faith. He brings up the fact that she, you know, was involved in pro-life stuff. She, he says, you, you know, it's seldom mentioned in the literature about Elizabeth Anscombe is this, this fact and all this kind of stuff. And it was very warm-hearted about her faith and everything. It was in first things. I thought, wow, that's, that's cool. I, I was not in touch with him. So here's the, here's the final piece of this. Probably four or five years ago, uh, the Center for Christian Thought here at Biola had a, a uh, uh, you know, they, they would have these big deals and, and, and there was a, a banquet thing and Martin Marty the church historian guy came in and spoke and stuff. And I was, I was part of the center that semester and Rich Mao, Richard Mao, who's the president of, of Fuller at the time, Fuller seminary, who is a philosopher, a fine philosopher. Uh, he was there and 
I went out to go to the bathroom and, and he's out there in the hallway. So I'd never met him. You know, I introduced myself to him. He's, he's a, by the way, he's a storyteller. I just was told the other, uh, Mike Nichols at our church. And, and so he starts asking me questions. Well, where'd you go? Oxford. Oh, who'd you study with? Anthony Kenny. Oh, Anthony Kenny, you know, and, and he's, he, he knows him. And, and he says, now, did you ever, did you ever have any intera interaction with Elizabeth Anscombe? I said, no, you know, and, and he said, well, I've got a story to tell you about that. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. I was, I was virtually in tears as he's talking and I'll probably lose it here. He said, when I, <laughs> he said, when I was in grad school, at the university of Chicago, I had a professor named John blank. This is Richard Mao, former president. That's he's talking. And John was my supervisor. And I didn't, I hadn't brought up John. Yet. John, John Finnis was his. No, no. John is the guy that blank. I don't, I can't think of his last okay. name. The, the son-in-law of speaking. Yeah, Elizabeth yeah. Anscombe. Yeah. The gotcha. atheist pro-life guy. He said, I can't, I don't know why I can't think of his name, but John, somebody. Um, and he said he was my professor and he gave me the hardest time about being a Christian. He just, he just was all over me. He said, and a, and a couple of years ago, Mal says, um, I get a call. And the guy says, is this, you know, Richard Mao? Yeah. Did you do a PhD at the university of Chicago? Yeah. Well, I'm John blank. Uh, I don't know if you remember me. Oh yeah. I remember you. He said, and I recall that I gave you a really hard time for being a Christian. And I wanted to contact you and apologize for that. And to let you know that I've become a Christian. Wow. Through, you know, the influence of my in-laws, wow. Elizabeth Anscombe and Peter Geach and their children. And I just wanted to, you know, wow. let you know. Wow. <laughs> wow. So the story goes on. Yes. And uh, so then I was able to kind of fill him in on some of my stuff. Yeah. 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 With him. Cause he know he also knows the guy. That's crazy. You met, the, <clears throat> you observed this guy in 89, 90, whenever that was at yeah. Stanford and, and completely unrelated. And then you went and had yeah. your life and he went and had his life. Yeah. <laughs> and then and, it all came back. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Dave, I originally only wanted to inter uh, interview you about the, the fireplace and Swinburne's office. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. The answer me, wasn't that great. Let but. me, that was pretty much what we were trying to lead up to the whole time. And, okay. and then I, um, I just wanted to double check. So you did, it's not, you didn't get an associate's degree at Oxford. It was, was it a higher? it was higher than that. So. It was an associates in cosmetology. <laughs> so you got, I, I, you know, a, a, but then they were, thought that I was, there's was it like cosmology and, and then, Oh no. And then, then it just went on from there. 
I noticed you were pronouncing it differently than I. So it's not Oxnard <laughs> Community Co. So I mean, we're just blown away by all yeah. these stories, and uh, we've loved having you on. And Dave, this is a—you uh, are never-ending well to draw from, mm-hmm. as is, as is evident, and. The personal stuff is, I think, just as important as the technical stuff that people read. Just the human element of philosophy, I think, would just blow people away, what that's like. And I I just really appreciate you modeling that for us today. And I think it will be valuable for years to come. Well, the, the, the vision that you obviously have for this... Uh, I think is so important. Um, I think it, you know, I have thought for, for quite a while that the story of what came about here at the Talbot philosophy program yes. is worthy of a book. Yes. You know, somebody needs to archive this stuff. And, Absolutely. Um, so and multiple I love, types I love that of you want to do yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. As, as part of this, I just, yeah, it's really. And I, I hope great. that the parts about having cigars and drinking uh, and that the policy changes and stuff is a part of that story as well. <laughs> and I hope that that all gets documented and at least multimedia. It doesn't have to just be a book, but um, we're, we're looking forward to uh, part two of this. If there ever is one, if you want to come back at some point in the future, We'd but we'll, uh, we'll we'll go ahead fun. and tie this off here. Thank you, Dave Horner, D. Phil from Oxford University. Let me scratch out associates. Associate of Applied Science is what I have. I don't know why. Okay, so and not Oxnard. It's Oxford. Ford. Oxford, and that was it means in a place where that the oxen England. would go over the little river. Oh, it's not. A it's not river. like Ox Chevy. Right. Or Ox Pontiac or Honda or anything. It's that's what the Ford is about. And it's not in Middle Earth. It was in I see I have that. Well, kind of pretty close to Middle (laughs) Earth, actually. It's not in Narnia. Well, thank thank you for joining us. We'll we'll sign off. Okay. Thank you.